back to the Elise Yeezy show. I'm your host, Elise Yeezy, and today I'm joined by Sean Atwood. Arizona prison fist bump. <laughs> <laughs> the amount of adjectives I could use to describe mm. you. So hmm, let's go through a few. Stockbroker, drug lord. Would that be apt, lord? <laughs> so I have to play it all down because otherwise I get called egotistic. <laughs> I, would, I would describe myself as a business studies nerd. Mm-hmm whose best friend was a G, wild man. <laughs> and the fusion of the brainiac and the muscle, we ended up running this ex- international ecstasy trafficking empire. And then you went to prison for a few years, yeah. came out, now you cover true crime. So basically a maverick. And that is actually how I wanted to start this off. Like, I never do like a notebook and write notes and questions. <laughs> I'm never that professional, but we're trying to step things up a, get, a bit mm. on here. So I would say that actually you're an incredibly se- successful person. And this Thank is why you. in each part of your life, because stockbroker, mm-hmm. you have to be like successful to do that and you're good at that. And then to become like a drug lord and you didn't get bumped off, right? You didn't get killed as a drug lord. So very successful as that. As that. Um, in prison, you had John's jail journal. Yeah. And that did really well. So you're in prison. You're at probably like what you would say the lowest point in your life. But you're doing something that's like reaching so many people, all these stories, amazing. You come out, YouTuber, over 600,000 followers. You've got all these popular books I've listened to and read a few of them. <laughs> and I think they're fantastic. And you're a podcaster. So where does this drive to excel come from? All right, I've been answering that in a second, but let's, let me f- credit you first with your YouTube success, which is absolutely brilliant. I've been watching no your way. videos <laughs> and what you do. So I see some parallels in our work ethic. Really? So I've got this mental illness called extreme workaholicism. <laughs> and Wildman, his nickname for me was the robot, which my mm. friends call me now. And it's, it is an unbalanced lifestyle, though, Elise. Mm-hmm. Because if you're like always work-focused, other parts of you are neglected, such as the spiritual side. Yeah. So for 10 years as a stop, five years, six years as a stockbroker in the 90s then, all that pressure was building up inside me and I wasn't releasing it. And then it just exploded into drugs and mayhem and ultimately a SWAT team, yeah. Yeah, so let's go right to the beginning. Okay. So when you were at school, were you a hard studier? Because I was not. So I wouldn't call myself a workaholic. I think I'm very lazy, but... All right, the, the school years then are mixed because in high school, sometimes I was the class clown, but sometimes I was studying. Mm. By the time I got to sixth form... My studies got more dedicated. And then by the time I did my degree, I had to really focus because there was a lot to it. But saying that, <coughs> excuse me, I did sit my finals coming down off ecstasy with all those beep, 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 beep noises <laughs> going off in my head. How did you manage <laughs> Been that? Been raving oh all God. weekend and then I just sat my finals. Well, when did you first try? Because ecstasy was the first drug you tried, right? Yeah, ecstasy did, and Were speed. you a drinker before? Did you drink alcohol? <clears throat> Not really a drinker. And I, I drank a bit and got really sick and it kind of put me off it. So I've never been a drinker, but... And I was offered weed and I was never a smoker either. Mm. So straight to the chemical substances of ecstasy and speed in the Manchester rave scene from the Dom Olden Road. How did it feel the first time you had ecstasy? Because it's a feeling unlike any other. I know, and I work in drug, drugs education yeah. in schools now, which is what I've done this morning before I come here. That's my disclaimer before I tell you I had the bloody time of my life the first time I took it. But that's a long <laughs> road 
<laughs> it starts out fun and you end up prison, police <laughs> or death. So my mate out of Manchester like, come and check this out. The, the rave scene because it was a revolution in music like we had never experienced in this country before raves you had to line up at a nightclub dress nicely and the bouncers look like snooty whether they're gonna let you in or not all of a sudden young people just started breaking into warehouses airplane hangers blah 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 it was, it was news headlines every weekend what we're gonna do about these wide-eyed grinning ravers the police couldn't cope with it the motorways were just packed as far as you could see with convoys of ravers so I've seen this on the TV and thinking, yeah, I want a bit of that. So my mate takes me to the Thunderdome. It's a bare square room with people sat around the walls. Nobody's dancing. And I'm hearing this music like, do, 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 do. And I'm like, what is that? It's like signals from outer space. So <laughs> I'm thinking, this is a bit weird. I wasn't syncing with it at all. Mm. I was a bit, I had social anxiety as a teenager. Mm. And next thing he's like, all right, I'm going to hook us up. So he goes over to some Salford skinheads, one of Grandma Billy Wiz, which is the speed and the e-pills. And then he takes me to the men's room and we swallowed the e-pill with some Lucasade, I think it was. And then the Billy Wiz, it's in this like wrap, you open it, throw it, drink me Lucasade. So again, we come back out and the, it's still a bit, I'm still a bit anxious, wondering what's going on. It's starting to fill up though, the room, it's starting to fill up more and more. And, um, about 30, 40 minutes, my mate's, his face just lights up. Looks like he's having an orgasm or something. He's smiling at mm. me. And he's like, are you feeling it yet? And I'm like, no, you know. And so he, he just buggers off and starts dancing. So I'm walking to the bar and all of a sudden my knees just go. And I'm like, oh shit. So I've got, a, I'm sat on the floor then, right? All these ravers are just walking around me. I'm just looking at their jeans and stuff. and sneakers and people looking down at me smiling and I just start feeling the same smile as everybody and I'm like I get it now <laughs> I get it and the music my head is going all warm and my t-shirt is like melting into my neck I'm like oh and um the beep doo -doo 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 -doo, all that stuff it's just like just like get off your ass and dance and so by the time my mate found me, we jump up together and the whole room is just pulsing and and I could just feel everything. So and I was very paranoid about dancing mm. at the school disco and stuff. I mean, I was a wallflower. So bad. Now I'm on ecstasy. And um, I, I could not stop dancing. I didn't even want to have a pee. I didn't even want to go to the toilet and have a pee and get off the dance floor. I was mm. so into it. And that was it. Raving became my religion after that. So having social anxiety, did you, was there some trepidation to having that first bit of ecstasy? Because yeah. for, for me, when I was like trying this stuff as a teen, I would research so heavily about it. I've, I don't, I never went to a rave and took ecstasy. I would take ecstasy and be like with my mates in the kitchen chatting so much shit about aliens and the universe until like 6am. <laughs> Cause I was just, I was always so paranoid about what if I took it and then I collapsed that. Because you get those horror stories in the news every now and yeah. then, like someone takes a gram of MDMA and they, they die yeah. at a club. Did these thoughts not go through your head or was it just a... So I've been watching a... this TV show called Miami Vice. And I, in Miami Vice, every drug deal ended in a shootout and everyone died or went to prison. So well, as we're getting this, the pills from the Salford skinheads, I'm looking around the room thinking all these Miami Vice <laughs> undercover cops are going to come in and grab us and take <laughs> us off. And even when we're eating substances, I was thinking like, you know, is it, is it my heart? My heart rate's going too fast. Blah blah blah, things like that. 
So I was conscious of some things, but I've got this thrill-seeking side to me that I've had to analyze when I went inside to address my demons. Yeah. The thrill-seeking side prevailed over the consequences side mm. by far. How old were you when you first took ecstasy? So this was like university age. And then what was it like after that? Because it sounds like it was love at first sight, which yeah. it kind of, yeah, yeah, it was for me too, because it's just such a feeling. Like, it makes everything mm. sound better. It makes conversations with people more interesting. It's one of those types of You're things. You're telling everyone your life story. You can yeah. dance like there's no tomorrow. It's... If you did it now, you'd have someone, you'd be able to talk for 10 hours about your life story. <laughs> you ever did it now. <laughs> but how quickly did it develop into this? Well, it's never a problem at first, is it? No, it's not. It's always... This is the thing. When you take drugs, the pleasure's very high the first time. Yeah. But every time you take it, it goes down a little bit. And the side effects are rising in the background. But you don't realize that. So over time, you're like, how can I get that high back? I'm going to mix my drugs up. I'm going to do harder drugs. I'm going to do more drugs. But And then that the side effects and the, the paranoia and everything starts to kick in. And you get into the dark side then. So how often did you start doing it, would you say? Every weekend. Every weekend? Every weekend. Ecstasy every weekend. How did that not yeah. completely fuck up your serotonin? Good grief. Well, by the time <laughs> we was in America, me and Wildman were doing 20 to 30 pills per weekend. Which is the guess <laughs> yeah. motion behind the camera is like cracking we up. We were importing massive amounts. It was like free to us. When did you go to America to become a stockbroker? When did that happen? That was 1991. Okay. And then... Well, talk us through that. What was it like being a stockbroker? It was Wolf of Wall Street. Seriously? Yeah. So we had these power sales meetings. The first outfit I was with, the boss was like an Italian mafia mm. looking character. He'd bring in these other top brokers to inspire the rookies. So there's a big board on the wall, right? With all everybody's numbers, the commissions for the month. All the rookies are sat at quads. And these sales guys are like, you're only as big as your numbers on this board for the month. If you're calling your wives, if you're calling your girlfriends, other brokers are calling your clients. <laughs> if you're taking lunches, if you're taking breaks, other brokers are calling your clients. Smiling brokers make the most money. Get a mirror on your quad. Pacing brokers make... We had to have, um, what was it, 12-foot curly cords on our phones so we could pace up and down the bloody around these quads and mirrors and... It was maniacal, and the brokers were doing crystal meth off the desks. <laughs> um, biker gangs were dropping the drugs off. Whenever the, they wanted to celebrate, a, a limo would come with a load of striptease dancers in, a, in it and take us down to the strip club. So I've just, I'm just fresh out of uni. I mean, is this, this is the business world. This is normal. I mean, this is the normal business world. So my mind was getting... <laughs> were the bosses okay with that? The that boss behavior? was coordinating the strippers really? for his birthday it was, or whoever the top producers were. Jesus Christ, imagine yeah. that. Yeah. Oh my God. Yeah. Did you, so you're, yeah, fresh out of uni, yeah. like fresh faced, dropped into this world. How soon did it take for you to start doing drugs at work? Or was it like an immediate thing? Was it a slow? All right, so the rave scene, America, right? Musical trends in Europe come into New York, come into LA, and then kind of like work their way across the States. Mm. And they were way behind they were still playing like UB40 and Michael Jackson and Prince when I got there. So I'm thinking, where's the rave music? So anyway, I managed to click up through the gay bars with the early people who later on became the main rave organizers and they, some of them became internationally famous DJs as well. So I clicked up with those uh, in the beginning, in the early years, and it was 
it was hard for me to score drugs in the early years of me being in America, but um, it, it accelerated, <laughs> accelerated. Yes, because then you started, at first, wasn't it you imported for yourself and your friends? At first, all right, so one of my crew was a guy called Acid Joey, stocky Native American, and I clicked up with him because we went to this underground club event and there was a circle of people watching him dance and he was so fluid and he was a big guy and he was fluid he should have been in music videos he was brilliant so i mean he's on the right stuff so i go out and talk to him i was like can you get me some e so he started to become my local supplier but you, you could only get 50 to 100 pills hmm. this is in the mid 90s in phoenix arizona 50 to 100 pills was the most you could get so then acid joey figures out all right well these guys the local suppliers are getting them out of la so me wild man seth and I said, Joey, drive out to LA to get some pills from this surfer gangster dude called Sol. Every single person I went out with is dead now. So God bless all, all my three um, former comrades there. But um, yeah, so Sol is surfer gangster. I'm thinking I've got like 10,000 plus dollars. Don't know this guy. It's in West Hollywood. He kept us waiting for hours mm. as well. So I'm sketching out. Well, I was like, I'm going to fucking just break his door down when he gets home. You don't keep us waiting like this. I'm like, keep keep Peter under control. So I, 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 we see him arrive. I said, I'm going to go in. If I'm not out in 10 minutes, then you can kick his door in. So I go in and um, I've got the money. And he says to me, I said, I want to try one. Mm -hmm. He's like, well, do you want me to get you a drink? I said, no, because I'm going to chew it. And he's looking at me like, you're crazy. Because I knew what the taste of a good pill was. So I just chewed it right away. It was a good pill. He's got the biggest bag of pills I've ever seen in my life. I hand over the bills and I got going. So in my twin turbo Mazda RX-7, this was before I knew any protocol about avoiding the cops or anything, before I become savvy. This is when I was just wild and carefree. Got a twin turbo Mazda RX-7, like our Fast and Furious one, with a first seat. I've got DJ Sasha on the uh, Bose surround sound. And I'm coming up on my ecstasy on the motorway going 100 plus miles an hour. <laughs> wild man, we're listening to Sasha. And because I've got no her, the first seat just starts tickling my head. And, I, <laughs> and my eyes are rolling then in the back of my head. And that, like every now and then the the, ra the police radar thing would go beep, 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 beep. I'd have to slam on. And a four hour drive home like that, I had a gun under my seat and everything. And this is, I don't think you even allow guns in California. Years later, everything's delegated. I've got a yeah. lawyer on standby. I know, plead your fit, and all that stuff. But in the beginning, it was just, I, I didn't fully understand what I was doing properly, the consequences. Yeah. Shall we explain to the audience first, uh, Wild Man, Peter, oh. the character of Wild Man, what a character that he was. <clears throat> were, you, were you friends as children? So there was a little street gang, not a hardcore gang like you see now. Kids just hanging out. Mm. And, and Wild Man's brother was the leader of our gang called The Sweats. <laughs> We'd watch too many American movies <laughs> like The Wanderers and The Warriors. And um, Peter, the youngest, um, his older brother won't let him join. Mm. So me and Wild Man's cousin, Hammy, splintered off uh, as our own little clique. There was three of us. And Wild Man had grown so big in his high school, he picked the teacher up and put him in the bin. And the teachers were so scared of him. They had him outside raking leaves with the caretaker. <laughs> so he's just this massive guy and he's got red dots in his head telling him to hurt people. Yeah. So we go to the thinking tree where we planned our lives. It was overlooking a quarry called Pex Hill at the top of Witness, my hometown. And I, I'd say, look, I'm going to 
fly you over to America when I make a million, Peter, and get you a job as a wrestler in my idealistic young mind. And Peter's like, oh, I'm going to spend the rest of my life in prison. I've got these red dots telling me to hurt people, blah, blah, blah. But he did. He went to prison shortly thereafter for several years. I went to America and laid the foundation, got the, got the, you know, built the stock market stuff up. And then when I did have the money, uh, I flew him over for his first visit, which did not last long and ended with a corpse on his doorstep. Explain what happened there. Oh, my God. So well, his first premises, sorry, ended with a corpse on his doorstep. Got him a place to live by the Georgian Dragon British pub in central Phoenix, thinking he's just going to have a, a Guinness with the expats and not getting any trouble. <laughs> About three weeks after he'd been moved in, me and my girlfriend go to pay him a visit and a bunch of Mexicans answer the door. I'm like, where's Peter? Peter? There's no Peter here. Where's Peter? Peter lives here. No, we didn't order pizza. There's no... blah, blah, blah. <laughs> and then they pull guns on us. They pull guns on us. So me and my girlfriend start backpedaling across the street. And Peter is massive. He, when he died, he's six foot two, 29 and a half stone. Oh, wow. He, uh, he bounces over the road, all smiles. I'm like, Peter, you just nearly got us killed. What's going on with your place? Who are these people? So, oh, don't worry about that, La. They're the local crack dealers. They like to move around a lot. I've rented them my place. I'm in their place over the street and they're buzzing because I can do a $100 crack rock in one breath and they're giving me all this crack for free. And he thinks this is the greatest thing. And the, the one at the back, he's from Colombia. He was Cali Cartel. And he wants to invest in the stock market. He's the boss. <laughs> I'm, like, I'm like, oh my God. <laughs> so that ended abruptly, that place, because the Mexicans moved on. He moved back in. Then I get, I'm, I'm in work, stop, stop brokerage office. We're going to top floor this high rise. I get a call from my aunt. Peter's place is headline news. There's yellow tape all around it. Someone's dead. It could be him. Get your ass up there. So I drove up there right away. Yellow tape. I've got drugs in the car. There's police camera crews. I'm like, oh, fucking hell. So I went back to work. I shit myself. But I waited till the afternoon. I went back in the afternoon, walk in. The corpse had been removed. There was blood on the step. And he's, Peter's in there with a homicide detective. So they've tested Peter for prints, um, gunpowder residue. Mm. I was just thankful Peter was alive. You know, I was been worried all day. Perhaps it was Peter who was dead. So on the homicide detective left, Peter tells me the story. A couple came over to buy drugs. The mm -hmm. female went over the road for the Mexicans to get the drugs. The man stayed with him and he had a gun. Peter's never seen a gun before. Mm. I'm from England. We don't, we don't have guns. How does this work? And the guy goes, oh, it works like this. And he's showing Peter his gun and shoots himself in the head and falls dead on the doorstep. Yeah. So then Peter is rapidly moved to, because he's having nightmares about this, he's moved to the, a West Side apartment with a woman uh, from the drug community who's got another female friend and this big bouncer guy, he's got blonde permed hair, like a Chippendale dancer style. Steroid head, thinks he's a tough guy. They said they're behind on the rent. If I just go over and sign a check to the landlady, he's got a place to live. I did that. Next day I get a call from the landlady, Peter's been evicted. Why has he been evicted? He beat his roommate up. How can you prove he beat his roommate up? The roommate was seen running through the complex in the middle of the night with plasterboard powder all over his head and face and there's multiple human head-sized holes in the apartment. 
So I sped up there. Yeah, she was right. <laughs> I cancelled the check. They hadn't a chance to cash the check. So the two women he was living with then said, look, we're moving to another flat on uh, in Tempe, Arizona. Her boyfriend is behind on his rent. Uh, can you, if you fix that, Peter can live there. And that is the apartment the whole criminal enterprise started out of. Because mm. like I said at the beginning, I'm the nerd. I can't just walk into the world of big, tough gangsters. But Peter is like, you know, he's got a lot of respect with those people and they buzz off his maniacal ways. So it's through these apartment parties in this complex, I ended up getting uh, the protection of the New Mexican Mafia, met Italian Mafia, met Russian Mafia, met street gang members, gang bangers. Because Peter was such that wherever he went, he just opened his doors to all the street people. Mm. So he would constantly be partying. He'd have like street walking, uh, trans Native American sex workers, gang members, uh, transvestites, um, just people from all walks of life. And they were all taking ecstasy for the first time. So you see these people that probably wouldn't associate and they're all telling each other their life stories <laughs> under the umbrella of Peter's parties. Yeah, and then Nasty Joey had jumped through the window dressed all in black and he'd, his, I've got more pills. And yeah, it was, it was something else. The naughty part of my brain is totally thinking that sounds sick. That sounds like that would be the place to be. That'd be so fun to actually see these people. What um what argument must have transpired to warrant someone's head going through the wall several times? Do you do you know what All right, so he said this guy was claiming gangster disciples. He was throwing all these hand signs at him and using all this gang slang. And it was doing his head in. So he just grabbed him. If you're this big tough gangster disciple talking all this shit. I'll show you what tough is. Boom, fucking just put his head through the wall. Is it bad to laugh at that? We, we, we call that purification. Purification. Peter purified people. So no matter um, how tough or what anyone claimed to have done, or if people were pretending to mm. be something they were not, Peter would rapidly purify them. Whether it was throwing them through a window, down the stairs, putting their head through a wall or whatever, he would, yeah. But seeing someone shoot themselves, having never seen a gun before, yeah. that must have affected him. He said he was having nightmares, yeah, and he was doing a lot of crack and meth, and he wasn't getting any sleep, and he was getting very paranoid. Yeah, that combination, that make you hallucinate, and who knows what you'd be seeing when you hallucinate those things. Actually, as, you know, you're English, you're from, is it Liverpool originally? Um, just outside Liverpool Witness. Yeah, yeah, going over to America and them having a gun culture, what was that like, seeing a gun for the first time and seeing guns used for the first time? All right, so... When I was visiting America, my uncles used to take me shooting and show me their guns. Ah. And I was in one house one one point. My uncle was in a room in the other part of the house demonstrating his gun, said the safety was on it, pulled the trigger, and a bullet went right past my leg and into the washing machine. <laughs> yeah, my parents were not happy about that. So gun culture is like normal out there. Even yeah. as a stockbroker, rival stockbrokers were threatening us, threatening to blow up my stockbroker partner's car over a client. So we went down to the pawn shop and bought guns. And it got to the point later on in my criminal enterprise where my, the head of my security team took me and him to get concealed weapons permits so we could carry loaded guns under our clothes. Yeah. I can't imagine caring so much about work that I'd want to shoot or, like, or blow up someone else's car over it. They blow, they shoot each other over the weather. <laughs> so when it's, when it's, you know, road rage, Arizona, yeah. it's almost 50 degrees in the, in the summer. Oh, really? So people just, 
oh no, it's a quarter or a third of the cars have got guns in the glove compartment or something like that. They start mouthing off when it gets hot because they're losing their cool and they just start shooting each other. It's on the news all the time. I heard Florida's kind of like that because like the climate in Florida is it's very hot and it's this weird ecosystem. Yeah. And that's why you see a lot of like Florida man does X, Y, Z. Florida man takes meth and eats someone's head or yeah. whatever. Yeah. Actually, like touching upon one of my points that I, <laughs> that I did write down, write down. So going from a stockbroker mm -hmm. to rubbing shoulders with dangerous people, you know, yeah. drug dealers, because it is dangerous. Mm -hmm. um, did you ever feel, did you feel the danger then? And I'm just thinking, I'm thinking back to my own experiences of when I would pick up gear from people yeah. and drug dealers like always usually liked me. I think they yeah. always wanted to try to take me on a date or whatever. Mm -hmm. But there were times, and I don't want to say which country, I was definitely rubbing shoulders with someone from a different country's mafia because he had this brick of cocaine. Mm. And I really wanted the drugs, you know, and I'm with some people and it's not like the situation itself was dangerous. It's not like anything was going to happen, but there was an undercurrent of what am I, there was a moment of awareness of, hang on, what am I actually doing here? Because this guy is from a different country's mafia. He's nice enough. He's being nice to me and I'm going to get drugs, but... Is this, am I straying from like a path here? How did it feel for you to suddenly be in that situation? All right, you're spot on, Elise, because my drug taking in the in America accelerated when Wild Man came right up until the SWAT team came. So that was like five years with Wild Man coming and going, coming and going. And the people I surrounded myself got more hardcore. As you rise up the ranks in what you're doing, you're gonna be interacting with more hardcore people. The first hardcore situation was at that complex that Wildman moved into, the final one that he moved into before he got deported the first time for being a menace to society. And Which is a great title, by the way, Menace to Society. Yeah, <laughs> it was called Rancho Marietta. It's in Tempe, Arizona. And it's a complex of multiple massive buildings. So by the time we're bringing the ecstasy in from LA now, we've got various people in various apartments dealing for us out of that complex. So we're at an apartment party at one time. I've brought the pills. Everyone's just chilling out, listening to music, smoking a bit of weed. And this other guy arrives who's called G-Dog. Now G-Dog, tall, ruggedly handsome, Mexican-American guy. He's got the prison tattoos. He's got the chains. And I get talking to him because we're supplying the product. Then a cop walks in and says, nobody move. And G-Jog just pulls out his gun, puts it at the cop's head and says, the only one who's not le leaving is you, motherfucker. Everyone run. I've never, ever seen anything like that before in my life. I'm shitting myself. We sprint over to another apartment, where, which is run by a guy called uh, Fish, who was dealing for me. And my other homie, Seth, who's dead, a big guy. And um, we're in there and we're like, fuck, the cop's gonna come here now. We've got all these drugs in here. Should we flush our shit? So we're crapping ourselves, discussing what we should do. Next thing on the French window, it's like, bam, 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 bam. We think it's the cops. We look out and it's G-Dog. He's like, let me in. So G-Dog comes in right away and he schools us because he knows everything. They can't just come in without a warrant, mm -hmm. turn the lights off, turn the TV off, don't answer the door. Everybody shut the fuck up. Don't flush your shit. He told us, don't flush our shit. Just fucking stay grounded. And that's exactly what happened. The cops came. They knocked on us, they knocked next door, there was sirens, helicopters, everything, it was madness. And then, at the end of it, I took him to a property I had in central Phoenix, away from that area. And at the end of the night, he said, Sean, because you protected me, you and your friends protected me, me and my brothers have got your back. I had no idea what that meant either. So it was months later, I went over to his brother's, 
there's this street well, you, know, you know those showcase cars like the low riders and stuff from like the 60s like Elvis movies and things like that the whole street's lined with these showcase cars well, they're pretty cool so we go to the door his brother's shorter than him know her looking up at me with this mean face <laughs> but when he hears me speak in an English accent he's buzzing he's like damn you talk funny <laughs> I guess you are from England come in and meet my homies because he's thinking you know is he bringing a cop here probably but because I'm so mm -hmm. eccentric English I go into the living room and um, all these massive tattooed Mexican-American guys. Again, prison tattoos, chains, little wife beater vests, shorts down below the knees. And they're all looking at me like they want to eat me. I'm, I'm looking around the room like, fucking, this is moody, man. This is serious. These guys are serious. Looking around the room. There's the biggest TV I've ever seen. There's a little screen next to it showing everybody coming and going on the street so they can't get raided. And then on the TV, I'm like, I've got to do a double take. I've seen one of them before. And they've got a rocket propelled grenade launcher on top of the TV, like out of a Rambo movie. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So I'm thinking these guys are heavy. Now one of them, one of the biggest ones, shoves a spoonful of coke in my face. He's like, snort this. <laughs> and G-Dog's like, yes, you better snort that. <laughs> Later, because while I knew this guy from prison, the big guy, and he was a hitman who was on a killing spree at that time very serious individual mm -hmm. i didn't know mm -hmm. any i don't i had no clue who these people were at this point so i snort it i get talking to the brother he takes me into a back room and from then on i was in business with those guys for a couple of years until they got raided and i didn't know who they were until they did get raided i was taking g-dog home one night and the whole neighborhood was blacked out and they had cops on the streets guiding traffic with light ones and as we pulled up to that house they're all coming out um handcuffed federal SWAT team raid and then the mugshots were all headline news that night head it said these are the heads of the in Ari these are the in Arizona these are heads of the New Mexican Mafia the most powerful violent dangerous criminal organization in Arizona at that time they tried to assassinate the head of the prison system assassinating judges cops witnesses everything yeah how'd that make you feel knowing that and that you had been hanging out with them I had gangsteritis so I was a business graduate who got a huge case, a huge dose of gangsteritis. And if people don't know what gangsteritis means, it's like someone who doesn't belong in that world, when they start getting around characters from that world, it, there's a vicarious excitement. Yeah. I think that, that originally began with Wildman, because you asked if I felt safe. Mm -hmm. So I've always felt safe with Wildman with me. And I, even, even beyond, it was the opposite actually, I felt powerful. So if I've got Wildman with me and G-Dog and Seth, it was massive as well. And we're walking into a club or something. And um, the bouncers are looking at these guys like they're, they're going to be a handful, you know, and they're, they're letting us in for free and all this stuff. And DJs are like giving everyone shout outs and things like that. Your ego becomes as big as the Grand Canyon. I'm in my 20s. I'm testosterone fueled you know, going into strip clubs and stuff and dating striptease women and then running the ecstasy through the clubs and... It, in the drug community, it's like the striptease women become your ideal um, partners and party friends. And mm -hmm. so there's a sexual component to it as well. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> you know, hearing these, <laughs> hearing these types of stories, I mean, it makes, it makes me feel so I can't imagine how were you dealing with the because these are whether it's vicarious or not, whether it's fun or not, because yeah. I've certainly been in situations where I'm around people who are I would say powerful 
Yeah. You know, good or bad, doesn't matter, but just powerful. And there is a vicarious, like, you feel like you're someone because yeah. you're around these people, you know. Yes. Um, you're pulling up in a limo at the peak of it, <laughs> and everyone's flooding to you as soon as you get out the limo, and then you're getting comped in, and you're actually, you own the people who are on the door. You've, you've invested in it, and everywhere you go, they're all coming up to you, giving you hugs. And your ego is just insane at that point, totally insane. And you're addicted to the attention. But mm. speaking of powerful people, there was a lot of powerful women as well. I've not mentioned any of them yet. Uh, wild woman. So the prosecutor, she assigned everybody in order of seniority in the criminal enterprise, the Atwood enterprise. Wild man, wild man was number three. Wild woman was number two. <laughs> but I'm going to get to her in a minute. Before we get to her. So the first time wild man visited mm -hmm. Arizona, he told wild woman... He'd just go in the shop and he jumped on a plane. And this was his was girlfriend or Yeah, that was his girlfriend. Or, his and girlfriend. Was she English, a, back a, in England? A mad scouser who took a whole family out with a bar stool. <laughs> These family members had picked on what either her friend or one of her family members mm. picked up a bar stool. There was a, there was I think there was a man, a woman, uh, I think there was like three or four of them, all hospitalized. So she became known as the wild woman of witness. <laughs> And Wild Man had already been christened by his Uncle Bob as the Wild Man. From when he was a teenager, putting teachers in rubbish bins. <laughs> so they were a match. They were a perfect match. So match made in hell. Yeah, I think, that, I think <laughs> when they met, he said... Um, it's obscene and not politically correct. But, um, something That's like, right. Something like, you've got nice tits. Can I have, can I have a look at something like that? And um, they ended up getting off and... Yeah, getting together, something like that. Did she show him her tits? <laughs> I, I'm not sure. Because a lot of people would have like slapped the person. I know, she probably did. She probably <laughs> slapped him and, and fucked him anyway because they were mad connected together. Um, but that's how it came about. Wild Man. That's Wild Man's version of events anyway. She's, yeah. she's probably got a different version. Um, so he tells Kerry that he's going to shop, just jumps on a plane to America. But he cheated on her with a stripper. Mm. And the stripper, what, how that came about. So Wild Man's party trick was at these apartment parties. He'd, he'd just sit there. Or if he stood there, he'd say, he'd have a taser gun. And he'd say to the whole room, who wants to taser me anywhere they want? Or punch me as hard as you want in my face. <laughs> and people would be lined up to taser him and punch him. He'd be just giggling like they were tickling his toes. So this woman came. Um, she was a black lady. She had a boyfriend with her but her boyfriend was out the room or something. And she grabs the taser off Wild Man and goes, that's nothing, I taser my pussy. <gasps> and I was like, what? You taser your pussy? And she goes, yeah. And, uh, she, and she was about to demonstrate and I was like, right, we've got to like announce this to the room. So I'm like, ladies and gentlemen, can everybody be quiet? Because <laughs> well, I've got to be careful with names. Um, this person here is going to taser a pussy. So... <laughs> she's got wild man's taser, right? And she squats down. She's got no underwear on, hikes a little skirt up. And she's like, and you can see the little bolts, like the blue little. I guess I'm sweating in a minute. This is horrible. <gasps> Continue, go on. <laughs> so she's just going up and down. And the little blue things are like, you can see them going from the taser onto her. And so they're like the, the vulva. Lips and vulva, yeah. et cetera, yeah. So... Oh my god. She's in the squat <laughs> position just like <sighs> just loving it. So this is how love at first sight, isn't it? If a wild man and this person taser heaven. So they they're like like click like that. Mm. So 
he sends, they send a fella to go and cook us some spaghetti bolognese in the kitchen, eat up some spaghetti bolognese while they're like getting off. And he comes back and this guy's a big guy as well. He was a bouncer himself. And when he come back, um, wild man starts eating it. He's like, yeah, nice meatballs. And the guy's looking at him like, wild man says, yeah, she's moving in with me now. We're going to go come to yours later and get all the stuff. How did he take that? He was a bit pissed off. And Wildman's just, I think so, yeah. Wild man's staring at him, eating the saying nice meatballs, looking at him. He's got this look in his eyes. Mm. When he's been up for days on crack and meth, yeah. he looks like the devil. And you can just see in his eyes that this is a this guy will go all the way. You know, he's crazy. And the guy ended up slamming the door and leaving. So when Wildman ended his first trip, he was unhousable. No hotel would take him. No person I knew would take him. Uh, during the course of all his trips, many houses were blown up or set fire to. Not on purpose, but by accident by him. Just, just he, existing. Because he was so crazy. Chaos. The wild ones, yeah, they blew a house up com combined in Mexico. A lovely house I put them in. Um, so he ended up, the end of his first trip, him and the striptease woman were like Bonnie and Clyde, just doing robberies. They were living under a tree at Tempe Beach Park with a Rambo... Uh, knife and a baseball bat and even though Wildman had took control of all of the homeless and the street people because there was some gangsters were coming and shaking the homeless people down because mm -hmm. they were like distributing drugs to the other bit of money and they were hustling and when those people came they were really cruel they were like beating the homeless people up and everything so Wildman just baseball batted the fuck out of him and he became king of the homeless people in Tempe Beach Park but cause they were like Bonnie and Clyde they got arrested uh, robbing something or I think it was, a, they went and ordered a meal and just ran out and got arrested. And that was when the judge said, you're a menace to society. You're, ne <laughs> you're never coming back. So I had to send Mission Impossible style teams of people around the world to smuggling him back in through Mexico and Canada. How did, how did Wild Woman take it? When oh she found God. out the Wild Man went and He told her everything. Her. He told her everything. Yeah. He was very honest with her, wasn't he? When he had... He um, said, she said, you're not, you're not going back on your own. I'm coming with you next time. And she did. Oh, my. Wildman, he's yeah. such an interesting character to hear about because on one side, you've got like this this pure chaos incarnate, like mm. uncontrollable. Red then dots, red dots. The red he, dots. Like his then, eyebrow going up. Yeah. The, if, he, the, if he's going to do something people. violent, just one eyebrow would stay completely flat and the other eyebrow would go that, that like that. Psychologically, what do you think the red dots were? Because it's, it's an interesting phrase to hear that there's red dots, like these angry dots in your head that yeah. want you to lash out at people. So we've had to contemplate this and I've contemplated it with his cousin, Hammy. And you know, like people say like they have a red mist when they get angry. I feel like a white hot rage yeah. when I get pissed off, which is regularly. <laughs> <laughs> well, man had red dots. Yeah. And he would like certain drugs would change his dots. So when he was taking crack for the first few times, he was like, yeah, you know, it's just, you go like this and it's sizzle, sizzle, sizzle and it calms my red dots down and all this. Ooh. So then other times he'd be like really paranoid. He'd be saying his red dots are like on high alert and he's about to do something. Or sometimes the red dots would go white. <laughs> mm. And then there's like, there's, because what you said just then about him beating up the gangsters who were beating up and shaking down the homeless people. Yeah. That's like a side of compassion and more no, values. He had this massive heart 
and a very protective side to him when seeing like an injustice because yes. that's like that's not nice to even hear it now that people were shaking down homeless people yeah, who yeah. have little to nothing from yeah. society and they're still getting a hard time by some gangsters if there was ever any injustice or anything you know he was very protective over the whole crew mm -hmm. but he was so wild he attracted a lot of trouble as well single-handedly yeah I've, and are you drawn to that energy no because it gets out of control yeah for example we were in a strip club and there's me wild man g-dog and some women with us and i think it was the dirty dozen showed up and there's like 20 30 bikers in there look like vietnam vets big old scars down the faces beards serious guys you know and mm -hmm. people got weapons wildman's eyebrow goes up <laughs> we had to drag him out of there and when the new mexican mafia when i clicked up with them g-dog said don't ever let wildman go to my brother's house so one night i drive over there and he's in the car I said you got to stay in the car and he won't stay in the car they've got ak-47s and everything at the door and i'm trying to get in and they're like he's not coming in and he's calling them all these things they're like these like straight killers he had no fear i was in a we was in a pool a biker meth head pool uh, bar one time and a giant comes in not as big as andre the giant but so giant like in his features he had that big chin and the funny teeth and looked mm -hmm. and everyone stares at this giant coming in and wild man's eyebrow goes up i'm like no peter for fuck's sake don't do anything and he can't be stopped. He's been up a week. Can't be stopped. He goes up to the giant and grabs his hand. I'm Peter. And the giant says his name. And he's looking up at the giant. And he starts squeezing the guy's hand and won't let it, let it go. And he goes, if I were you, I'd be in the circus, you fucking freak. And the giant looks down. He's like, what did you just say? <laughs> you fucking heard me. If I were you, I'd be in the circus, you fucking freak. And his eyes are like this big, like the devil. And the giant's looking in the, into the devil's eyes and he backs down. It's the eyes. They know. This, you can't win against this. So the giant took us outside, showed us his car. His, his front seat is in the back. He's so big. He's got a specially made car. And he gave us his number and everything. He said he wanted to hang out and, and come collecting debts. And we lost his number. But imagine Wildman and a giant showing up to collect. Oh, God. How much of Wild Man was like, how much of that was though, the crack and meth and being up for a week straight? Cause that does turn All right, he was like that all the time. So I had social anxiety. Yeah. So hanging out with him, it, it, he went anywhere and talked to anyone. So I didn't have the fear. So mm. he was my door into everything, like pubs, talking to people, clubs, whatever. He would just go in and start talking to everyone. So um, he never stopped, but on the meth, once he'd been up for a week or two, sometimes he'd come back, he'd been walking around for days and he, with his, sh his shoes all beat up and his feet all bleeding. Other times he was hospitalized with heart situations because you're walking around in the desert mm. without any fluids on crystal meth, hospitalized. So I went to visit him in one of his hospitalizations and the first thing he said to me was, have you got any E? I thought, right, when he's, when he's better, he's gonna pop this E. So I gave him the E. Popped it right away. He's got all these things attached to him. Monitors, you know, like in America, they got monitors everywhere. So we're like talking to him next minute. He's coming up. He's like, dee, 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 dee. We all fucking ran out of the place. <laughs> yeah, he didn't give a shit. Other times he'd wake up 
in someone's house he just walked into. Didn't even know where he was. Oh, yeah, there was a Vegas one as well. All right, so, oh, my God. We went to Vegas for the turn of the millennium. We're on the strip, and it was the only fatality in the whole world. It was right by Wildman and us. <laughs> oh, my God. This guy was shimmying up the electric poles and fell down and died. Oh. So then we tried to get into Club Utopia. Me and our crew got in there, but they wouldn't let Wildman in. He had a, a, a little tin of pills that they found they wouldn't let him in. I said, look, he's come all the way from England. Blah. I thought they were about to like give him to the cops. He's come all the way from England. Come on, he's a tourist. So they let him go. So he's not, he's not coming, but we'll let him go. So he just walked off into the night. Right. So three, four in the morning, me and my wife are on a slot machine now in uh, Las Vegas with all these grannies and stuff, gambling all night long. And um, all of a sudden, all the security members... The security guys just, these big, you know, big security guys just run through the casino. We're like, what the fuck? And then we're not paying any attention. We have no idea what that's about. Then all of a sudden, wild man. So wild man, he's got no shoes or socks on. He's just got his trousers on and a belt. He's topless. He's massive. So they're herding him through the casino in a circle like he's cattle. And we're looking, we're looking at him. And he's, he just looks at us and doesn't say anything. And I'm, I run after them with my wife. And we're like, what are you doing? He's with us. And they're like, well, he doesn't know who he is. He can't speak. He doesn't know where he is. He doesn't know how he got here. And um, while he's with us, he's in this room, blah, blah, blah. They verified it and they let him go. And we took him up. And he, he couldn't speak. He couldn't speak. He'd done so many substances. I think he'd probably eaten his whole tin of pills. Oh, my God. There was mystery pills in there as well. Oh, no. And he's just, we got him in this room, and he's just looking at us like like, like, like a cow. Like cow eyes looking at us like, I, I cannot communicate with you. And it took hours and hours before he could speak. And he said the last thing he remembers was he won a thousand on a, sh on a machine, and he was kicking it with some woman down an alley. I think they were, they were God knows what they were doing. And I think she robbed him. I think she robbed him. And he got so high off all of his stuff, he didn't even know where his clothes had gone. Yeah. So he never just had like a normal night in. It was extremes. <laughs> we could not let him sell product because any amount of drugs you put in front of him, he would consume. We were on our way to a rave in LA one time in a car and we think we were on LSD and we thought the cops were following us and they weren't even following us. And all of a sudden, we're like, who's going to fucking swallow the drugs? Well, I was like, give him, give him me. In the, there was like half an ounce of crystal meth in it. It sounds like the opening to Fear and Loving in Las Vegas. He ate the whole thing. Oh my we God. got to Big Bear Lake Mountain in California. We were, we were from Arizona in our sandals and our shorts. We got to Big Bear Lake where it's freezing cold. And people I knew that to give me clothes and, and cut jackets and everything. And he's in his, he's in his uh, sandals and his shorts pouring sweat out all night long because he's all this drugs his, his body's trying to get rid of it he done any quantity of drugs he would do he didn't give a fuck the mexicans were giving him hundred dollar crack rocks in one breath and he's arm wrestling people i took this crazy stockbroker guy over there this arab guy who'd been in prison and he was he was like big tough he i think he got in a fight with a biker that's why he went to prison and him, him and wildman would do a hundred dollar crack rock There'd be a circle of Mexicans watching him, cheering him. And then he'd grab this big Arab's arms and the Arab's veins are popping out of his head. He's arm wrestling, <laughs> arm wrestling, arm wrestling. Veins popping out. $100 crack rock. That's what he was like all the time. <laughs> all the time.
But it was too much. There were times when it, he got so dangerous, I could not let him know where I was staying. Really? Yeah, I was paranoid. He showed up my stockbroker's office. The, the receptionist says, you better come to the front right now. Peter's up here and you need to see this and get him out of here quick before the clients see. He's got a pimp in the reception at this brokerage where, you know, these high net worth people are coming and going. This guy's got like a purple top hat on with a feather in it, golf shoes, purple suit, all pimped out. I'm like, Peter, we've got to get downstairs quick, come on. Get him in the elevator. I said, what's, 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 what the fuck are you guys doing? And uh, what was it? What was he saying? He said he needed $100 for a gun because he was getting threatened. Oh, yeah, that was his first trip. The striptease dancer, the black lady, he'd moved in with her dad in the projects. Okay. The projects was extremely dangerous. Mm. And he was the only white guy down there. And they were saying he had jungle fever because he was going out with a black woman. So he wanted a gun to protect himself against the black gang members. He got kicked out of the projects and banned from the projects. But for being too dangerous. Yeah, I wouldn't give him the, I wouldn't give him the gun. I'm like, I'm, Peter, you're not having any money. You're not having a gun. You're, you're too crazy. He went off and contacted G-Dog. G-Dog, and he got in a vehicle with G-Dog. They pulled up at the corner shop where all the gang members were hanging out with big old ARs, 15s, whatever they were, and all and started shooting off and all the gang members ran off and Peter got banned from the projects <laughs> people say he's going to get killed if he moves into the projects he got banned from the projects <laughs> it was non-stop he was larger character. than life god bless Peter yeah, yeah that's larger that was, than life so many stories and there was doesn't matter where he went they said, they said he would, they would kill him if he went to Mexico and behaved like that yeah. when I went down the cartel Associates were running him around in military jeeps, calling him L.O. So the Burr because of his fighting style. Jeez. And him, him and Wild Woman paved the way for our Mexican operation because some of our smugglers got caught in American airports and stuff all around the world. And we consulted someone who knew a lot about smuggling uh, routes, a lawyer. And the lawyer said, start bringing him in through Mexico. Yeah, because I'd yeah. like to get into that. The expansion of, you know, you're importing them for, for ecstasy or whatnot for friends and yeah. then it starts to expand. Talk a bit about the expansion. All right, so from the it. from the surfer gangster guy, um, I ended up with three suppliers out of LA, including one of my best friends for life, who's DJ Mike Hot Wheels, who I lived with for 10 years when I came back. And, but... As an economist, you want to go to the source, don't you, to get your price right down to maximize your profits. So I couldn't leave the country because I was an illegal alien. Mm -hmm. So we got testing kits from a website called Dance Safe. Because I'm thinking if you're getting a lot of pills in, you've got to make sure it's good stuff because if someone dies, you're fucked. So these kits, it goes like this purple-blue color, the pill, the, when they test it. So my smugglers went out to Holland and connected with suppliers. And then we started bringing shipments per person well we tried the mail fedex stock market reports hollowed out and glued in but it was getting so many pills we had to do it, do it bigger than that so like before 9 11 people could put them into pillowcases or if you want to be more secure t screwed into computer towers put them on a plane and our route was train from holland to paris air france from paris back to mexico city Mexico City to Hermosillo, and I, I had the wild ones in mm -hmm. Puerto Penasco, Rocky Point. They'd, they'd secured that. And um, I remember once we had like 40,000 pills coming, 
I said to Peter, can you just fucking behave yourself once in your life? Don't bring any heat. And what happened was, the next day, someone ripped him off for a $10 crack rock. I'm like, Peter, just let it go. He's like, I don't care if it's $10 or a thousand or a nobody rips me off. <laughs> and I know it. And he's like, take me to this guy right now. I'm like, Peter, if I take you there, just get a, a replacement rock or get the 10 back off him. Do not do any violence. Yeah, yeah, I'll behave myself, Lord. I'm in a Nissan, white Nissan Pathfinder SUV. We're cruising up to where this dealer was that sold him this bunk rock. There's cops on this road, and I'm thinking, oh, fuck. Wildman opens the door and uses the momentum of the vehicle to bop this guy's head into a lamppost and knock him out instantly. Then gets down and starts mauling him and taking all his shit in front of the cops. So I just drive the fuck off. There's no way I'm getting arrested with this maniac. So I drive back to Wild Woman and another one of my friends who's dead, Cody Bates. God bless Cody Bates. And I said, look, Peter's been arrested. There's no doubt in my mind that he's been arrested. He's just done this in front of the police when I told him not to go and bail him out. So we're sulking about that. And then all of a sudden he just walks through the door. Why the fuck did you drive off? You just did that in front of the cops, Peter. I forgot the fucking cops dealing drugs from me. I'm giving them acid and ecstasy. So I'm like, oh shit. So yeah, that, that they had it all locked down down there, which was good. Because if you're running drugs through Mexico, Mexico's divided what's called plazas. Mm-hmm. So the cartels control every plaza across Mexico. And these border areas are very, uh, you got to pay a lot of money to transport drugs through them. So unless you're okay with the locals, I mean, you're aware of what kind of things happen in Mexico. They could take you off and kidnap you and torture you and everything. And yeah, so Wild Man and Wild Woman had it had it secured for us with the locals, so we could bring our stuff through. So it's important to network with all the locals. To make it's all them. about networking. Yeah, we we made alliances with all the right people because mm. I think we got through it with minimal damage to ourselves. There was no major. The only person that got attacked was my top XC salesperson. Now, this guy is called Skinner. And when he was introduced to me, my girlfriend and other people said, don't trust this guy. You know, he's he's homeless. He's smoking crack. He's living out of dumpsters. And I was like, I always give everybody a chance. So I, I'd be like, I'll give you 100 pills. You can pay for them. Or you can just rip me off and leave the state and we'll never see you again. Well, I like to give people a chance. Mm-hmm. So he's like, I'll prove myself. And he proved himself to the point where he ended up a top ex-salesperson. Him and his woman, he got, um, had a house and a baby and everything rose up the ranks and we were really close. But when Wildman came over, because I was spending a lot of time with Wildman, Skinner was sulking. And this is how big enterprises fall rivalries with between the people you're working with jealousy yeah he was getting jealous this is what caused the end of everything well i mean i've got to take full responsibility for breaking the law and doing what i did and it was going to end one way or another Mm -hmm. but if you look at the reasons things ended in this case it was like a personality clash between wildman and skinner so he got so jealous of wildman right he firebombed he organized a firebombing of Wild Woman's apartment while Wildman was in prison on his second or third deportation. He thought Wild Woman would be vulnerable to just handing her 
stuff over to some people who come to save her from the firebombing. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So problem, reaction, solution. Yep. <laughs> <laughs> so firebomb comes through Wild Woman's window, just misses her, almost sets her on fire. <laughs> the Southside uh, gangsters show up and say, look, we're with Skinner. We're with you. Get in the car, grab your product. We'll take you to safety. They underestimated the wild woman. <laughs> She's a scouser. <laughs> Who the fuck do you think I am? <laughs> Who the fuck do you think you're talking to? Do I look like chop fucking liver to you? No, 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 no. Get in your fucking car. And um, they fucked off. They couldn't, they couldn't <laughs> cope. They fucked off. They couldn't cope. And the pills were saved. And it came out that we didn't know immediately mm -hmm. that Skinner had done that but we found out that Skinner had done it. So I paid a lawyer to expedite Wildman's release from this prison so I could smuggle him back in yet again through Mexico, which I did. And all that was on his mind then was murdering Skinner. No matter how many times we tried to talk him out of it or chill him out of it, Skinner knew that. So Skinner went to the cops. Really? And left the state. And we didn't know he'd left the state. Now, another one of my friends who's dead, all my male friends from these stories are dead, nearly all of them. Joey Crack. So Joey Crack was like a walking drug testing kit. He was this feisty New York Italian, skinny, um, as an Afghan hound. And if we were like wanted to test drugs, he'd just get his needle out and go, Ksh! yeah, good stuff. <laughs> that was Joey Crack. So Joey Crack um, was looking for Skinner at, at the end of everything. And he went, he went to Skinner's place and Wildman was in there. And Joey Crack, as, Wildman grabs Joey Crack, thinking it's Skinner. And he's about to, and, and Joey Crack said, I've never ever seen so many weapons in my life. He had like knives, golf clubs, hammers, pincers, screwdrivers, tasers, every single weapon known to human beings. <laughs> and then he, he said that Wildman just grabbed him, and there was like sweat just dripping off his chin, and his eyes were just completely blood red. And he's like, I'm not Skinner, it's Joey Crack, it's Joey Crack. <laughs> Yeah, well, that was near the end. Wildman was just... By the end of it, Wildman was gone on drugs. Seriously gone. Yeah. We couldn't stop him. And at the height of the importation and dealing, um, what were, so how many pills did you say they were bringing in? What, were the, what was the street value? This is the thing. I think Unilad Lad Bible did a little chart, but they made a mistake on it. So... The street value of ecstasy in the clubs in the mid-90s was $25 to $30 per pill. Hmm. By the time I'm getting them out of Holland, tens of thousands at a time, if you add in the cost of the pill, the flight cost, paying the smugglers, legal costs, I'm probably at the most paying $3 a pill. Now, people say if you're paying free and they go for $25, $30, you are making all this money, but that is not the case because... At this point, you're a wholesaler, right? Mm -hmm. So I'm going to give 5000 on credit to one of my guys for 7 to 10, depending on what pound money they take. Let's, let's just do the math at 10. Say they take 5000 at 10. Another guy takes 5000 I'm um, six one thousand at eleven. Another guy takes you know 2000 at 9, whatever it is. Say the average out is at 10, though. So if I'm paying free... I've got seven profit, haven't I? Mm -hmm. 40,000 was the most we ever brought over in one shipment. So that's a quarter million profit mm -hmm. on that, yeah. 
So, and that wasn't like every week, that was every so many months. And you were paying for lawyers as well. All so, my workers had yeah. legal benefits. <laughs> so if you got arrested, all right, so go, let's go back to the New Mexico for what they told me. This is where I got all this from. They said, if you ever get pulled over leaving our house, a cop does not have the right to search your car unless he has probable cause. So you can tell that cop, if he's not got probable cause, He's going to say, can I search your car? And you can say, no, I'm in a hurry. I don't want you to search my car. And you can just get going. If they force a search upon you, exercise your right to remain silent and contact this lawyer. Right? And that mm -hmm. was the lawyer I ultimately contacted when all the shit went down. But prior to that, because that was a very high-priced lawyer, we had another lawyer on standby for any one of my crew who got arrested. So everyone was briefed. If you get arrested, you contact this lawyer right away. Keep your mouth shut. First-time offender. You're not going to do any prison time, probably, if it's a first offence. And exercise your right to remain silent, and blah, blah, blah. And everyone everyone abided by that. It was really cool. They knew we would bail them out. They knew they had legal benefits. And people who played both sides, even some, some of our guys, like, double were double-dipping me and Sammy the Bulls crew. And Sammy the Bulls crew, Sammy the Bulls crew, they didn't provide legal benefits. So people say, yeah, I'm coming back to you for the legal benefits mm. and things like that. Yeah, yeah. But one guy who double dipped, <clears throat> we didn't know he was double dipping. So one of our clients, she wanted a thousand pills and she got some money from some people who were out of state, one of her clients. She gave them to this guy thinking he was getting pills from us and he went to Sammy the Bulls crew. As he was leaving the premises, he got pulled over and the cops took all of his pills off him but let him go on his merry way because there was a big investigation. So he comes back to us and says, look, I just got to so the client, our client says, the cops pulled me over and took all the pills. Sorry, no money back. So she went to Wildman before I even was aware of the situation. Wildman punched him in the face so hard. His knuckle got so, his uh, tooth, one of his teeth got so deeply ingrained between two of Wildman's knuckles, he couldn't get it out. And I had to go to hospital. And Wildman hated hospitals. He was he said he was self-healing. So he went to the hospital. They got this knuckle out. And they, they said Wildman had to stay around for jabs and whatever. And he's like, Wildman immediately just leaves the hospital. No, he's not, I'm not gonna do this. Oh, and it had to be sewed up. He didn't want it, he didn't get it sewed up or anything. He just as soon as it was out, he he just walked out <laughs> the hospital, goes home, he's got a fishing wire, and he sewed it up himself. Oh my yeah, god. Yeah. What happened to the tooth? Did he keep it? No, they took it out of the hospital. Yeah. yeah. Oh my God. He hated hospitals. I remember there was a time when he, in the first place that had the cops on the doorstep, mm. he had some roommates and I went up there to take him for lunch and I, I, I go to the back room. I'm like, w I can't hear him. I hear these groaning noises. And Wildman's in the back room dropping the TV set on one's head, picking it up and then dropping the TV set on the other's head. I'm like, Peter, Peter, stop doing that. These are your roommates. I said, why are you doing that? He said, the heroin users, I've warned them time and time again not to leave the needles out in the bathroom and stuff. And I just almost jabbed myself with one of their fucking dirty needles. So I'm teaching them a lesson. But he'd accidentally also dropped the TV on his own foot and his ankle went like this big and black. I'm like, what you need to go to hospital, Peter? He wouldn't go. Self-healing. Wouldn't go hospital. At the height, um, how often would you say that you were doing drugs? Was it a daily thing? So, I was in denial about my the cyclicality of my drug use. Mm -hmm. 
the f- that first time I described in the very beginning, I told myself inwardly, I'm going to take drugs and have the time of my life and I'll, I'll never get addicted and I'll, I can stop whenever I want. Well, I was telling myself that until the SWAT team came. I was a weekend warrior. I'll never get addicted. But once I quit the stock market stuff, there was times when I was, it, it didn't, it wasn't just a weekend. It was like all week long to the next week, all week long to the next week. And especially when you're on meth, it can go for weeks and months. What's meth feel like? I don't know. Didn't try that one. So you've done speed. <laughs> yeah, but not by itself. It was, it was actually what it was. <clears throat> was, was um, we'd been doing, um, it was my birthday. So we'd been doing lots of MDMA and my best, um, I shouldn't say that actually, my friend, one of my friends, one of them, I've got lots of best friends, just in case their parents watch this. Uh, one of my mates found a packet or something on the floor. <laughs> at this pub in Camden and we took it back to mine and he tried it and he was like oh that's speed so we had some of that just because we'd run out of the MDMA so uh, I don't really I don't know how good it feels because I never tried it were you rushing were you high for a long time um I don't remember. We used to do, when we did MDMA, we would do a lot to the point where you're Mm. hallucinating just by doing that alone kind of thing All right. so crystal meth is like speed times 5 or speed times 10 for example, when Wildman's cousin Hammy came over and I was still working in the stock market, I said to him and his drinking partner, help yourself to everything that's in the safe. And then I went off to work. I've forgotten, like in America, you do one little line of speed and you go in. And in England, you'd eat a wrap, a gram of Billy Wiz. So they see the speed in the <laughs> safe and start eating grams of Billy, of, of American crystal meth. Oh my God. So I got home that night after work the whole trash can is full of Budweiser cans. They're just drinking constantly and their eyes are popping out of their heads. I went to bed and I woke up the next day and they're still having the same conversation as when I went to bed. All night long, they've just been talking. But they're getting a bit paranoid. So I says, look, I've got some friends out in California, the, the beach out there. We'll go to strip clubs, chill you guys out. All right, we'll go to California. <laughs> oh, God, this story. <laughs> I'm just going to backtrack. As soon as they'd arrived, I had a limo pick them up at the airport and took them to a car dealership. And mm-hmm. I bought a car in Hammy's name for drug smuggling purposes. He'd already agreed to that. He was getting paid off for that. So that perhaps put some paranoia in their minds that I'd put a car in Hammy's name. Mm-hmm. So we're driving to LA on these big ass motor, uh, freeways. And they start doing the meerkat thing. You know, the, the, the eyes like, head swiveling. What's the matter? What's the matter, guys? We're being followed. So the drinking partner it was mostly we're being followed. I'm like looking at Hammy. I think he's right. I think he's right. Slow down, slow down. So I'm slowing and going to the slow lane. Yeah, they passed us now. You can speed up again. So this is building up right to the point where they want me to pull off the motorway. And even when I pulled off the motorway, they said that the person who was following us had pulled off as well, so was still behind us and following us. So we get to Palm Springs where we stopped for some milkshakes and to try and chill these guys out because they're getting more and more paranoid. They're saying helicopters are following us now and wood-paneled cars are following us. and we, ch- we chill them out a bit. California, Sunset Boulevard, pink hotel room, sketchy as fuck. We go to check in. I've got three separate rooms and they're looking at me like, why are you getting for us three separate rooms? You've brought us out here to set us up, haven't you? We need all to be in a room together. No, no, I'm sorry. It was the other way around. It was the other way around. <laughs> I got us a room together. 
They wanted me to be separate from them. Separate from them. Right. So I go separate from them. So you can so if like you were setting them up, they couldn't all like be at once. Yeah, the police are gonna come once. in the room and catch us all at once. Yeah. So yeah. I need to be separate. <laughs> so <clears throat> I've got a woman who's a striptease friend of mine out there and she comes over. And this they seem quite chilled out, you know. Um and we plan to go to the beach with her mate and all this stuff. She leaves and we go to the corner shop and the drinking partner, we're in this corner shop and the drinking partner just grabs a bottle of orange juice or something with a glass bottle and smashes it on the floor and says, I know the, the common, the, kind of, the, the, the transmitter in the bottle or something. We're like, we run off down Sunset Boulevard <laughs> and fucking get back to the pink room. And then he's going through the trash. He's... um. Really wigging, really wigging. Hammy, wild man, wild man's cousin calls me up and says, you need to come to this room and like, chill him out. So I'm like, what's the matter, what's the matter? And then Hammy's like, I need to take a piss. And the drinking partner goes, why do you need to take a piss? <laughs> Who are you signaling to? Because <laughs> I'm not signaling to anyone, for fuck's sake, I just need to take a piss. And he goes, we need to take a piss. Well, I'm coming with you. <laughs> and the drinking partner goes, uh, he didn't see anything. He, he just launched onto his back like a monkey. And he's like, what the fuck? I got a piss. I got a piss. You're going to be on my back. You're going to be on my back. So they're taking a the piss. He's taking a piss. <laughs> and, uh, Hammy completes his pee. The drinking, <laughs> the drinking partner starts freaking out. He goes, why did you shake your dick three times after the piss? Who are you signaling to? Oh, yeah, that's it. There's a transmitter in his penis. Who are you signaling oh to? Oh, my God. But just then, some gutter punks showed up at the, like, there's, like, <laughs> there's this blood, this dodgy hotel's got, like, a snowflakey effect on the window that's worn out over the years from all the crack smoke, probably. And these mohawk gutter punks suddenly appear. It's like, I knew it. I knew you were signaling someone. I knew you were signaling someone. Runs into his room like, like Tasmanian devil. Busts his case open. Throws all his clothes around the room. Starts throwing all his shit at me. We're like, calm down, calm down. Pulls his wallet up. Gets all his money. My fingerprints are on this money. Throws it all in my face. I was like, no, you're setting me up. My fingerprints. Throws it all in my face. Like a wolf on that, like a werewolf on acid. Runs off down Sunset Boulevard and I never see him ever again. <laughs> Maybe he's still there to this day. No, no, he's not. I'll tell that you, sounds I'll tell so you. stressful. Hammy, right? Hammy's, so the striptease person is a friend of mine from Arizona and we're very close and she's got a girlfriend and they were supposed to party with us but they'd showed up in the middle of this and the drinking partner had opened the door and been like, why do you want us to go to the beach? And they'd run off because he'd been so aggressive. <laughs> so I was like, I go over to explain the situation to them and chill out with them while, while Hammy's looking for his mate. And um, in the end, they ended up back in Phoenix and I think Hammy flew home because he'd found out what happened and he felt sad. And he wanted to go and support his mate. And what had happened was the drinking partner had been walking around LA paranoid. He thought that Asian people, Japanese and Chinese people in particular, were following him and coming after him. Mm -hmm. And a Japanese family come up to him and asked him, this is what triggered it, I think. A Japanese family come up to him with an expensive camera and said... Will you take a picture of our, of, you know, our family? Some, 
iconic site in LA. And she thinks, I know, cause the listening recording device is in the camera. I'll tell him I'm gonna oh I'm gonna take a picture of him. And he he was about to take one and he smashed it on the floor and ran off. Oh that poor family. I know, I know. And then he woke up the next day on like a park bench in LA with just his trousers on. And he got a cab and he went to the embassy and they thought they they got him a flight back to the UK. Yeah, yeah. So that's what meth does to you. It keeps you up and it makes you so insanely paranoid. That's my demonstration of don't do meth, kids. Stick to you. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, and it makes you look terrible as well. I've seen those pictures of like before meth and after meth. Oh, and it's All right, so there was a headline news story when I was out there of a guy who, he was a postman, and it showed a healthy picture of his face, and then a year later, the crystal meth picture of his face, mm -hmm. all sunken in and meth sores and everything. And the reason he'd made headline news is because he'd been driving his vehicle on the freeway. He had crystal meth psychosis. He'd been up for a number of days. He had his two sons in the back. And he looked in the mirror and he saw one of his sons was a demon trying to kill his other son. So he pulls over, gets a knife out from his under his seat or wherever, grabs the son he thinks is a demon and cuts his head off in front of the other son. So people can go downhill very fast on crystal meth. Do you know what ended up happening yeah. to him other than prison time, obviously? Yeah, prison for life. For life? Yeah. And that's in America, so life does mean Yeah, life. at least 25. Imagine when you sobered up and you realised what you'd done. Even that's hearing it makes you feel when, not, not just the act of hearing it, but mm -hmm. knowing that when he sobers up, he's going to realise what he's done. Yeah. That for me, that's what makes me feel a bit ill because it's like you've done something that's mm. not reversible under psychosis i don't know how you'd actually i don't know how you'd go on to live with yourself you couldn't could you you would you'd carry that to the grave and the other kid who the boy who saw it yeah. saying like their dad their primary caregiver mm -hmm. do that to their it's horrible it's so it's so nasty i've never had any inclina inclination ever to try something like meth ever this is why people it just do didn't drugs. look fun to me as well it just it, for, because for me it was like oh it's fun coke's fun or whatever meth mm -hmm. never looked uh enjoyable to me so I well, never coke can be extremely dangerous too, especially if you're smoking it. Because while man was smoking it, oh, coke turns people I've... into arseholes. Yeah. <laughs> that's my big thing. Because like even I turned into an arsehole with like long term mm. cocaine abuse. I turned into a bit nothing crazy. Like I wasn't mm. going around beating people up, but it was just short tempered, didn't have much time for people, was like irritable, paranoid, these types of things. And the people I was around yeah. who'd been doing it for longer and they were older, mm. um, they you just you would just see over the course of a few years people just turn into these. Assholes. Yeah, so it starts out as glamour and glitz and fun, and you get in the clubs for free, and you're part of a clique, and your egos inflate in. But every time you take drugs, the side effects are creeping up in the background. The asshole bit is waiting to come out, mm. and the pleasure's going down because you need more now to try and get back to where you were, which increases the side effects because you never ever get back to that first time you took anything. No. First time you took ecstasy. Wow. And the next time you think it's going to be the same, and it almost is, but then a two, three years down the road, it's not. You're never going to go back. Are you chasing a, a, something that's not, not never going to happen? Yeah, the first time I ever did coke, I had a line, and I spoke to one of my mates for about three hours straight, and it was so enjoyable. And then so quickly after that, moving to London, doing it a few times in like the first week there, um, I went from like doing one line for my first time and then on my like third time 
it was like every hour and that's how quickly it can especially what you're when you're around people who have it yeah and coke it becomes fiendish fast because you gotta constantly re-up yeah it makes me it makes me feel mm. gross to think about it um because it's just it's very it's very stressful and you're stressing out your body yes you're battering your immune system and your organs and that's why while man died he had multiple organ failure yeah they had to put a stent in his heart when he went to prison and like I said, he had these, uh, he had a stroke at one point, actually. He had a stroke and we went over to see him. So he's in this house of all these drug users and he's got a crack. He's, half his face is paralyzed now because of the stroke and his lips down here and there's drool coming off it. Mm. And the other half of his face is working. So he's got his crack pipe or his meth pipe in this side of his face and he stands up and he goes to the whole room. People used to think I look scary. Look at me now. <laughs> <laughs> oh my God. People were like, you're going to kill yourself? You, you, have your, you can't move out of your face. And he didn't, it didn't stop him. Didn't no. stop him. No, and that's the, that's the addiction behind it. Yeah. Am I right in thinking um, you got out of, say, the business mm. of dealing and importation? But it was two years later that you got busted by the FBI. A year later. Okay, so I met a woman. She talked me out of it. And a lawyer gave me a heads up as well that we were hot. So I was down to just personal use. I couldn't quit my personal use because I hadn't addressed my demons. So living in Scottsdale in an apartment with this woman and enrolled in Spanish classes at college, trying to get back to normal, staying the, trading the stock market online. But it was a multi-agency investigation. So you got like the feds, you got the state of Arizona, you got customs. The same agencies that had took down the New Mexican Mafia then took down Sammy the Bull's crew. Mm -hmm. And I was, yeah, you just wiped out my competition, thanks. But all those resources then put on me. So in the end, it was the state of Arizona that prosecuted the case. It wasn't the FBI or the feds. Mm. Yeah. And my nemesis was one of the detectives because when that SWAT team came, I'm yelling at my girlfriend, like, I'm exercising my right to marry inside. I love exercising my right. She grabs me up by the handcuffs. He's like, yeah, we finally got you. English, Sean, yeah. Your nemesis in the... It, yeah. That sounds very like Wolf of Wall Street when they go on the yacht together. Yes, <laughs> yes. Because when I read the police paperwork, this detective had been, like, sitting at the table next to me in Indian restaurants and stuff, trying to hear, listening on my conversations. No All these places he'd been over the years... But they said we moved around so much and I changed my identity so much. Whenever the raid was going to go down, I disappeared. And that's how they got this wiretap authorized because they sent undercover cops in as well. Come on, older guys who don't fit in the rave scene saying they're from out of state and they want to buy a thousand pills. How obvious is that? We had all the locals <laughs> locked down. No one can infiltrate that barrier because any drama that's happening on, at the street level the locals are going to feed that information back up into the enterprise. How many people? How many people ultimately were in the enterprise doing about two hundred? Wow. So there were only half of them, I'd say, got arrested, and they arrested in various groups over time. So mm -hmm. the first group was twelve, thirteen, I think. The next group was twenty something, and on and on it went. Mm. Yeah. Mm. So let's go on to the the downfall yeah. of Sean Enterprises. Uh, Skinner. Went to the police. So now we've got 10 witness statements by the time of the grand jury indictment, mm -hmm. including one of the 
apartments in Mexico that while the wild ones are demolished, the landlord turned us in for that one. And some of our concerned, some concerned citizens and some of Sammy the Balls crew who were trying to reduce their sentences mm -hmm. who weren't even working for me were just trying to like make things up about me to try and get, get the heat off them. So that was the 10 witness statements. They hoped that if they arrested over 100 people, we would all cooperate. Mm -hmm. In Sammy the Bull's case, all 57 cooperated. But no, we were tight. We were tight. Only four cooperated out of over 100. And my lawyer said, because they've not arrested you with any pills. They've not got you on the phone talking about anything other than personal use. They've missed the boat. Circumstantial, mostly. But I was naive to statute of limitations. They don't have to catch you with the drugs. All it takes is someone to say, I did a deal with this guy so many years ago. As long as it's within seven years and they've got you. Mm -hmm. So yeah, they had the case. And I had, to, I had to accept my karma cheerfully. I resented it in the beginning because I had no evidence. But I, I realized I had to pay my price. I had harm society. I saw the horror of what drug use led to in the prison. All the guys injecting heroin and, and hepatitis C. And it made me ashamed of putting people on that road of drug use. It was sad, really. I thought heroin addicts lock them up, throw away the key. They're under bridges like trolls, mm. stealing all day, burgling people, grabbing grannies' purses and things like that. Um, once I lived with them for six years, it was the best education in addiction and psychology I could possibly have had. Mm. And hearing the sad stories, molested as kids, thrown away as kids, raised on the streets, traumatized, and they were on heroin because that blocked the trauma out. It was self-medication mm. when no one else had helped them. So the majority of prisoners were society's most vulnerable people. And that's why I started to want to help them in terms of the human rights and the activism and the blog. So when you got arrested, you were in a holding, like, is it a detention center? The, the jail that you were held in whilst you were awaiting your sentencing? Yeah, I was on remand for 26 months. I was fighting my case. I was last man standing. And so that was the famous Maricopa yeah. County jail system run by Sheriff Joe Arpaio whose guards were murdering mentally ill prisoners. Brian Crenshaw was classified as a partially blind shoplifter. They came in, started beating him, tasing him. His face turns blue. And um, a female guard tried to stop it. Mm. They pushed her off. The, the inmates are yelling, why are you still beating him? He's already dead. And they continued to beat the corpse after it was dead. That was caught on camera. Scott Norberg was another one. People can Google these cases. Uh, he went into a coma and died. The so I think he paid out 50 million in losses by the time I was there, there was 50 million more pending. So it was the jail with the highest rate of death in America. So you got the neo-Nazi Aryan Brotherhood murdering the prisoners. One video I had on my channel which I had to take down was Peter Van Winkle, Aryan Brotherhood gang member, murdering another prisoner who'd refused to beat someone up for the gang. Mm -hmm. Now this is the guard's camera. I'm supposed to watch this. And stop it. Yeah. For 10 minutes, he's smashing this guy's head over and over. And he's looking at the camera. Why aren't you stopping me? Mm. 10 minutes in, then he starts stomping on his head. 20 minutes in, he's, he's, he's finished his stomping on his head because he's dead. And they still haven't stopped it. So he grabs the body, brings it right in front of the camera off the balcony, he tries to throw it off the balcony, gets stuck on a rail, and he starts kicking it over and over and over again. But the violence in it was mayhem. Sheriff Joe Arpaio was the architect of just an absolute house of horrors. And I've tried to psychoanalyze that. His mother died giving birth to him, so I, I don't think he ever had any em maternal empathy. Yeah. 
Do you remember your first night? Um, you get arrested. You're taken to this yeah. holding cell. Do we're you remember your first night? What was it like? We're in a van approaching the Horseshoe, which is a processing centre at the Madison Street Jail. Now, in the van is the first 13 co-defendants, half men, half women. Outside of the Horseshoe are all the new arrestees, gang members, homeless, people with addiction issues, people who have been in fights, who were drunk, people who have been fighting the police, tasered the police. So it's, it's a quite a rough and tumble bunch. And the women get off the van first. Mm -hmm. So all these men then scan our women and start saying obscene things. Some like get your tits out and stuff like that. Mm. Wild man's observing this calmly on the bus. Wild woman gets out and they're yelling at her. His eyebrow goes up. As the men are getting off, you know, the guards are yelling, you know, get out, get out, get out. They yell at him to get out. He doesn't get out. He just stands on the top step and the guards are yelling at him. And wild man, he's got this Viking beard, this crazy Viking beard at this point in time. And he just like looks at all the men. He goes, you lot disrespecting our women. In a minute, we're all going to be in these cells together. You want to, unless you shut the fuck up right now, we'd have any of you, you fucking... Any of you you want, we'll, we'll have it in when we get in there. And they all, they all show up. They all show up. So that was the beginning of it. So then we're in that for like a couple of days. You see a judge. Me and Wildman got assigned to Towers as medium security in the beginning. Mm -hmm. And the rest of the co-defendants, the 13, were minimum security. And the women went off to the female one. A wild woman. We had an Asian co-defendant called Angel. I've actually interviewed her on my channel. If people want to check her testimony out. And because she's Asian, like it's all racial, isn't it, in America? Yeah. So I think the women, the biggest gang might have been the blacks or something, and they started beating up or threatening to beat up Angel. Because mm, it's all segregated, isn't it? Yeah, yeah, Wild Woman's had a bad day at this point. Mm -hmm. So she, she, this, gang, this, this, this gang is picking on Angel. Wild Woman just walks up to the biggest one, the gang leader, grabs her head, just starts smashing her head into something. And then she turns to the rest of them and goes, I'm having a bad fucking day, who's next? And they left her alone and she got a lot of respect. Um, so that was the entry of the wild ones into the system. So I got split from Wildman right away because mm -hmm. he was my co-defendant and we had a do not house. Mm -hmm. But I used to meet him in the churches services. And there was a point where the Italian mafia took over from the Aryan Brotherhood in my building. And one of those guys constantly recently, Bruno, I've done three interviews with him on my channel so far, and he was the enforcer for them. And Joey Crack. So the, the Italian Mafia guys were like, right, we know, Sean, you've got all these co-defendants. If we move all your co-defendants in to here, because there was like group two co-defendants, because they could be around me, will you guys have our back if anything pops off? Like, yeah, yeah, totally, we'll have your back. So he moved, he couldn't move Wildman in with me because he was group one co-defendant. Mm -hmm. So he moved in Joey Crack and another guy. And Joey Crack's telling all these Italian mafia guys all these Wildman stories from when he was running around with him on the streets. So then, like, right, we they arranged to meet Wildman at, at the Catholic Mass. And I'm, Bruno's sat here and the Italians are here and Bruno's here and Wildman's on this side of me. I remember when Bruno and Wildman shook hands, it was so powerful, I almost like flew out of my seat. <laughs> now, the Italians are quite religious, mm. especially they had like one that served as their butler called, um, what was his name? Hugo, Hugo, he's Argentin Argentinian actually. Um, but he was, it's, I think he was mixed race, Ar Italian, Argentinian, something. So he was like their butler. And 
he um, was the most religious out of all of them. So the priest is telling the priest was old. He must have been about seventy, and he's telling the congregation about how his mum is ill and in hospital and to pray for her. So at the front, you've got the most religious prisoners. They've got Jesus and Mary tattoos and stuff. And we're all in the back rows. And wild man can't whisper. He's so loud. He's always getting told off. And the religious ones are getting pissed off because wild man's so loud. They're like, it's disrespectful, shut up. And even some of the Italians, because wild man was laughing. He was like, how old is his fucking mum? Look at him. He's in his 70s. She must be about <laughs> ready. She's got to be about ready to kick the bucket now anyway, for fuck's sake. <laughs> And, um, That'd make me laugh too if I was there. Yeah, yeah. And people are like, shh, shh. So the priest goes row to row handing out the communion. And he comes to our row. And all the Italians get the communion. They're like doing all this. And Wildman gets the communion. And as the priest turns around to go away, Wildman spits the communion in his mouth, slaps it on his eye like he's got a pirate patch. And goes, ah, again, ah. my voice is going, but it's like, ah. everybody look at me. And um, <coughs> the religious ones are like, oh man, this is so disrespectful. And my man's, he's like, you're all sinners. You're all in here because you're sinners. Don't give me that shit. She's just like calling them all out. And the Italians have been crying. Like when this priest's been talking about his dying mum, some half the Italians by now are in tears and Wildman's doing this pirate patch thing. <laughs> so Wildman then takes the community off his eye and launches it at the priest. And he's so powerful. I mean, this is like this little wafer thing. But he manages to get it airborne. And it's like the whole room now is watching this communion wafer <laughs> skim the ceiling, hit the priest walking back to the front. It hits the priest in the back and falls on the floor. And Hugo just jumps out of his seat and he's so outraged by this behavior and runs and grabs the communion before the priest can see it and hides it. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> that's how they met. So Bruno was like, yeah, Wildman was a maniac and everybody was in awe and everybody respected him. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, which that helped you at that the time, didn't it? Yeah. It you was kind of force had of his, people wouldn't, they didn't mess with you because they knew how close you were. Well, I got sweated man. about my charges as soon as I went in. It's called a charge check. Yeah. So the ABs come up to you, the Aryan Brotherhood, the Skinheads, and take you into a cell and they want to know what you're charged with. So I didn't understand it because it's like conspiracy, crime syndicate, criminal enterprise. No idea what all that shit meant. Mm. So I said to them, look, I don't want my charges mean. Then they got me up against the wall about to beat me up. They're like, are you a chomo? Are you a fucking chomo? I was about to say, they think you're a chomo. I didn't even know what chomo was. <laughs> I know the slang. I'd, yeah. be right. I'd be all right in prison. I saw it. <laughs> they made me pull out my charge sheet <laughs> and they're reading it and they see I've got a $750,000 bail bond on the conspiracy charge. It's mm. like, God damn, are you guys the mafia? What? I'm like, no, we were just ravers. <laughs> He's like, yeah, right. They were like, you, you, you fucking killed and all this shit. I said, look, I'm, we were just throwing rays, but you know, wild man, my main guy's over in this other tower. He's a big psychopath, blah, mm. blah, blah. And then they start, I think they start thinking I'm making this up about him. And they're like, yeah, we'll find out. We'll find out if you've got someone over there and they did find out and yeah i didn't get any didn't get sweated after that yeah we should explain for the audience just how much of a it's almost like a such a dirty word to be called a chomo or a child molester yeah in prison because that's one of the easiest ways to get yourself targeted isn't it if, if people if, find out that if you have got anywhere for that there's no mercy but the gangs know that that can be people can play that yeah. so like guards can say like he's a chomo 
just to try and get. Sure. So there's a thing where you got to produce your paperwork. And the fact that some yeah. guards would say that just because they don't like a prisoner. Or guards would know people are sex offenders uh. and snitch them out because they hate sex offenders too. Yeah. Some of the worst violence I ever saw was... Them. So the sex offenders now, there's so many of them, they get their own prisons. Mm -hmm. But some want to go in the general population for the advantages of it and they, they take their chances. Now, for several months, the Mexican gang leader lived next door to me in Tower 6. This is back in 2002. And there was three of them in there. So they were designed for one person, but you got three people living in a fucking toilet room with three bunks next to the toilet. And the Mexican gang leader had a cellmate who was a Mexican Jehovah's Witness. And he was preaching and handing out the Watchtower magazine and all this shit. Anyway, he goes off to court one day, the Jehovah's. We've got a little TV in the day room, and which everyone fights over. So we've got... Each race has got so many hours on so many such a channel. And news is reporting this guy's case. He molested his niece. Oh. So the Mexican gang leader was so embarrassed to have her had a sex offender living with him. He thought, right, I better do something about this, make an example. Yeah. The guards do a security walk about every 30 minutes. So they waited until the guard had done a security walk so they could torture him for almost 30 minutes. I'm next door. Mm -hmm. and I've never heard such noises before in my life like animal noises of someone getting tortured it's, it, it was like you know in the beginning he's saying stop blah 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 and then he's making like animal sounds like a cat on fire or something do you know what they were doing? no because I couldn't see but before the next guard had scored because you can see in the guard in the plexiglass bubble when they're about to do a walk they let him out of the cell and he was covered in blood from head to toe and he managed to stumble down the stairs and to the plexiglass door and knock on the door. And they just, the, the door just went zzzz, and he just collapsed and he was gone. And we never saw him again. Yeah. Mm. Something I find really interesting about prison and prison culture is I can't I can't think of the word just how normalized certain behaviors become because I, I knew someone who'd been to prison for a five stretch like five years in in england for something and they told me that at the beginning um people would use like certain terms and phrases like if you like if you snitch on someone or like you're grass xyz and at the beginning they found it like really just weird and be like well why would this be the case but a few years into it it just became so normalized that they were like oh what that person got beaten off being a snitch good yeah if you don't find adapt, that so if you don't adapt interesting fast you're mm. gonna get singled out so I'm in shock, aren't I, first few days. They've got a guy in the shower. The ABs are just battering the hell out of this guy. But they left him whimpering in a pool of blood. This is within the first few days. Mm. They think he's a chomo. And then this big guy with cobwebs tattooed on his neck is like, well, you, why, how come we can still hear him? You didn't smash him good enough. So he just went in on his own and gets this guy's head like he's trying to crack open a coconut until this guy looks dead. And then as a security guard comes in, does a walk and sees it and lock down everybody, we all go back to our cells. And I'm looking through the plexiglass at this guy on the stretcher. And there's not just blood coming out of his head, there's like yellow stuff coming out of his head, he looks dead. So I'm, I'm that's, that's compounding my shock now. Already mm -hmm. in the horseshoe section, 
gangbangers are fighting and people are getting dragged out and put in restraint chairs and spit hoods put on them and they're like this in these restraint chairs and blood there's blood on the fucking walls and madness and you think it's going to pop for any moment i've got through that i'm now settled in a cell and now i'm seeing someone i think who could have just been murdered in front of my eyes so i'm shitting myself i'm not a tough guy and then they come up coming up to me then you gotta get that look off your face mm. otherwise you're gonna get preyed on so six months later I'm like dead eyes. You've got to have dead eyes because any sign of emotion will be exploited. But it's fake. Inside, you're still shitting yourself the whole way yeah. through. Your adrenaline's still going off. Mm. So a year in when I got moved to max security, I didn't know anyone at all. I'm thinking, right, I've got the jail walk down. I've got the slang down. I'm entering an unknown now whereby the white gang, this is max security now. This It's going to be all murderers, basically. And they're going to decide whether... I'm accepted or brutalized. Mm. So I walk up to the woods table. This is the white guys call each other woods. And the head wood is like, where'd you roll in from wood? And this guy's bullet, he's a murderer, head of the gang. I'm like, Towers Jail. He's like, you know, why they move you over here? I'm like, my, my bail got doubled from $750,000 to 1.5 million. He's like, what the fuck did you do, wood? <laughs> I'm like, you know, explaining my charges and everything. All using the prison slang back to him mm -hmm. that they know. And I'm knowing the whole time the whole table's watching me and they're watching him because they want to know what he's going to decide about me. This is life or death potentially, or mm. at least I could, I could get a, a beating. So he's like, you can't sit at the table because there's only so many seats, you know you stand and talk to us and then go back to your cell. And I went back to my cell after they grilled me. And then I'm waiting in my cell for the verdict. And he comes down with all his case paperwork. And he's seen through my tough guy act that I'm an educated person, a resource to him. Because a third of them can't even read or write. So that's how I fit in. Yeah. That was my currency, my education. Yeah, because they would come and have yeah. you read their charges and help them out. Because yeah. I was quite, um, I read Hard Times and there are a few things that stuck out to me. Number one was the conditions of the cell. Yeah. Cockroaches. Like, what was it? You Did you get a blanket and like put it all around your face so like cockroaches wouldn't go? Like, how bad were the conditions of the cell? All right. When I arrived at the Maximum Security Madison Street Jail, 2004, no, 2003, it was my one year in after my bail had doubled. It was about two in the morning when I got to the cell. And it's a two-man cell. I think that's an improvement. There's some light slanting in from the day room. My cellmate is on the top bunk at the back, cocooned in a white sheet. This is fucking strange. The bottom bunk is available. Now, where I come from, people fight over the bottom bunk. So I'm like, I'm wondering why is he giving me the bottom bunk? Mm -hmm. Something dropped off the ceiling and bounced off my shoulder. Holy shit, what's that? I'm looking at the walls and the ceiling. And there's this weird movement, like a swirl effect, like acid shit. I'm like, fucking hell, I'm tripping because I've been up, you know, I've not been able to sleep. I better take a closer look. So I put my face right up to the wall. And it's covered in American cockroaches. And the reason he was asleep on the top bunk, this is a very old building. It's closed down since. And there's like brackets, which bracketed to the wall and like massive holes. And they're just pouring out of the holes onto my bunk where I'm supposed to sleep. And the reason he was wrapped in the sheet is because he's left a breathing hole like the mummy, just 
so they can't call on him. But they do, they do call on you. You've got no choice. So eight at night is locked down. Ten is lights out. By lights out, they're already lined up in the cracks. They know that these. They know what's got. You know, they they can't wait to fucking invade and try and eat your fucking toenails or whatever. <laughs> and um, so as soon as those lights go out. You, you gotta wrap the sheet around you, but then mm. it's 50 degree heat. You're covered in bed sores and skin infections and look like I spilled battery acid on my leg. And because of the heat, you're sweating constantly. So your skin's soggy. So you're itchy and you scratch yourself and clumps of your own skin comes off under your nails. So in the end, you're so hot with this sheet around you, you just throw it off and let them crawl on you. And they start on your feet. I mean, to this day, I've had, you know, Girlfriend tickles my hands and I'm like that because so many nights they they come in and tickles my hand and mm-hmm. throw them off me. But the favorite they get on your face, mouth, nose. The favorite place of all is going in your ears to eat your earwax. Oh my god! Like honey to them. And then I had the neighbor who was asthmatic, wakes up one morning out of breath, grabs his inhaler, psh, launches a cockroach inside himself. Freaking out, saying he can feel it move around, and he's throwing up, trying to get it out, and he can't get it out. Oh my god! And then in the day room, even in the day, there's so many. The prisoners are doing cockroach races, gambling on the winner. But I, I lived with the roaches for a year mm. in in that Madison Street Jail, so I got familiar with all the habits. And you've got to, if they're going to be your cellmates, like any other cellmates, you've got to adapt to coexist with them. Mm-hmm. So you learn everything possible about them. So. They're very sneaky at pretending to be dead. So if you throw them in the toilet, they look like they've drowned, but they're just compressing oxygen to themselves. You'd see them pancaked. People would just get the shower sandals on them. I'm reading a book on my bunk. There's a splattered one over here reading the room. An hour later, it's like coming, it's like reforming. It's coming back to life. And it's just running off. And like if you do start battering them. They communicate by chemical signals. And all these warrior ones come running under your door, like, what's going on? What's going on? And then pregnant ones, the worst <laughs> is if they give birth under your bunk or in something in your cell. Because it looks like a piece of a worm, the sack they've got the babies in. And they try and attach it on t- under your bunk or to a book or something. And once that pops, all the babies are just running around everywhere. And and there was white ones, I don't know if they were shedding the skin or something or what, but they will eat through your commissary bag, your plastic, your paper bag that's got your peanut butter in. They'll eat like eyelashes, they'll skin flakes. They just can survive off anything. Yeah, paper. they're so they'll resilient. Yeah. 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 So you give up trying to kill them. Um, <laughs> Sheriff Joe Arpaio gave out these two paste packets it was called a fresh a-m-e-r fresh years later it came out they were from china it had some anti toxic antifreeze in them i guess that's why he ended up with them oh yeah so i would cement all the cracks i'd save those up and cement all the cracks because they moved you around periodically so i'd get up to a place got a load of fresh seal all the cracks my cell smells nice and minty but they were still get under the door, but that was the minimization of them with the with the cracks sealed. I remember one time I just sealed all the cracks. I was so proud of myself. 
and I heard over the intercom, Atwood, roll your shits up, roll your shits up, which means they're moving you to another part of the jail. Mm-hmm. Oh my God, I got to this part of the jail, it was mayhem with the roaches, and my cellmate was saying he was sleeping with a towel wrapped around his head so they couldn't get in his ears and eat his earwax, and telling me a story of some woman who won't, one went in her ear and it, it didn't come back out and she had to have an operation to get it out and but they are they're funny when you just you sat there reading all day just watching them do their maneuvers around you mm. for a year basically that was my life so i just had to coexist with them yeah and become a cockroach expert become a cockroach expert yeah it was the spiders that did the most damage the brown recluse Oh, God, I didn't even think yeah. of spiders. I just thought of Kesmation behind the camera's eyes went right. Even when you're not in jail, if you pull over on a road in Arizona, you'll see a little sign saying, do not go beyond this sign due to the dangerous insects. Scorpions, rattlesnakes, spiders, they've got everything that will kill you. And they got this thing called a brown recluse. And it comes out at night looking for food. And you just roll around in your sleep and you touch it and wake up with little pinpricks. And you might not think too much about that. But in the following days, then, the pus starts to come out and the venom eats into your flesh, down to the bone on some occasions, and causes what's called a volcano lesion. Now, the policy of the guards was, we don't treat insect bites. So we would show the guards these prisoners and say, this guy's got to see a doctor, please take him to medical. Policy of the jail not to treat insect bites. You put yourself in here, you deal with it. So there was a guy called Alejandro. He was a teenager who'd been in a drive-by shooting and he'd shot a load of people and every night he was looking at the headline news in case one of them died. One of the bullets went through a girl and took a nipple off. Yeah, so if, if any of these kids died, he was up for the death penalty. Mm. Got all these street gangs in America, all these rivalries, all these kids doing this crazy shit. So every night he'd come out and look and see if one had died and... Um, he was so big, he was like the biggest, one of the biggest inmates I ever come across. And the bunks are only so big, so you know his flab is going to be rolling up and down the walls all night long, and the spiders are coming out. He was so big, they had a, a they had the, they had a meeting. His race had a meeting as to what to do with him because he was sweating. He was so sweaty. Whether they were the, the decision was, are we going to just beat him up and get rid of him? <laughs> Or um, what they ended up doing was they allowed him to stay, provided he took a shower every so many hours and coated his body in baby powder afterwards. Oh, my God. Yeah, so ultimately, <laughs> Alejandro, with him being so big, he got bit on his back. And he, it looked like a baseball of yellow plasma was trying to spew out of his back. So day after day after day, we are asking the guards to take him to medical. I'm also in the jail, not treating it, like blah, blah. So in the end, we decided to do something about it. Now, there was a white guy from Russia who was my chess companion. He was he was one of the only guys I ever saw call the Aryan Brotherhood guys out. He's like, you guys are fucking addicted to this crystal meth. The Yankees, your the dope is sucking the Yankees' brains out. And he was, <laughs> yeah, he was funny. So he's like, I'm gonna be the doctor. Mm-hmm. I've, I've dressed wounds, I've been in the military, I've dressed wounds. I was the toilet paper guy, and we had big guys arm block Alejandro in the day room and hold him. So um, the Russian's like massaging this wound and all this pus is running down his back. And I'm mopping it up with the toilet paper. And Alejandro's got, he's got five minutes in, he's got like sweat dripping off his chin, dripping off his ears. 
and he's like jerking us around the room. He's so big, and we need more guys to hold him. And in the end, when all the pus was out, what the Russian guy did was he put salt on the wound to reduce the bacteria. Yeah. I think Alejandro eventually ended up in a cell with Wildman and Joey Crack. Yeah, Wildman and Alejandro and Joey Crack, what a combination of people. <laughs> and Joey Crack told me that Wildman was, um, he had a picture of Wildwoman under his bunk and, it, and all night long he'd be like tapping 666. 666 on the picture and then he'd get um, these old grapefruits and just mash all these grapefruits on the floor so it was like really slippery and then Alejandro had to be up to get to court the next day they wake you up at midnight and you're holding cells all night long so Alejandro's got this really serious case you know he's facing the rest of his life and he'd get up in the night and just be slipping and sliding all this grapefruit shit all over the floor which amused the fuck out of while man and then eventually Alejandro came back and he'd been sentenced to like 90 years or something ridiculous. Mm. And they had a last conversation with him and then he was taken off to su suicide watching Supermax. Yeah. But when I got moved to Max, then I started a competition for the prisoners called Suffer of the Week. So if you had $20, you could spend $20 a week, right, on your commissary. You could buy peanuts or a Snickers bar or peanut butter so literally a snickers bar was a meal for me because i mm. couldn't eat the crap mm. and a, pe a peanut would be another meal for me and so if you won this uh suffer of the week you got the jackpot of like you know a couple of items six items maybe at the top range of it so this one guy the brown recluse had bitten his thumb and his thumb in the beginning you know it went red and then the pus is coming out and it's whatever it's eating the flesh and it's going blue and then it goes purple and it goes black this is day by day by day by day and every day you know he's saying asking the guard to take him to medical and it's like two weeks in now they're changing the colors and it's black and mold is growing on it by now so they're like we've got to take him the mold is they, they cut his finger off they had to cut his finger off yeah dead at that point and he comes back and he says it was all worth it just to win the suffer of the week and get the <laughs> snickers bar <laughs> a fun for a snickers bar this is how hungry people are people are killing each other over food over food that's dropped on the floor they're picking up and eating it mm, well that's the yeah. that's the second like point i came to when i was reading this book just how inhumane the conditions really are everything from uh, the health and hygiene, how like you've got all these sores and then you, it takes ages to mm. see the prison doctor. You're not allowed to for the insect bites. The food, like the, what's it called? Red death. The Mystery meat slop, slop that sometimes had a dead rat in it. Yeah. And we gave a rat back to the guards one time and they said they would investigate it. And they came back later in the day and said it was just a potato. So we couldn't <laughs> sue the, the jail. Rat. Yeah, so we couldn't sue the jail. Yeah. Yeah. But boxes were taken from the kitchen into the hands of lawyers suing the jail that said not fit for consumption. They were using canned food from the 1970s and they were going rat infested neighborhoods and picking up all the dirty old fruit and giving it us for breakfast. And the mold on the bread, yeah, we just, if the bread was stale, we'd put it in water mm. and swill it down or just try and get the moldy part off and just eat it. I lost two stone on remand. Mm. By the time I got to the sentencing hearing, my parents set out like a concentration camp survivor. Yeah. yeah, and some people might listen to that and be like, well, prison's not meant to be fine. You're not meant to have Xboxes. But these are people who haven't even been sentenced yet. And what yes, uh, also what point. also like struck me was um, it sounds like a lot of people in there, They uh, a lot of the people from 
you'll book hard time. It sounded like a lot of them just had really severe mental uh, Big, illnesses. Biggest of the mental illness. So the media keeps people hating on prisoners. Mm. They're pedophiles, they're murderers, they're serial killers. That's all you hear in the media. Mm-hmm. And on the other side, the media says they got PlayStations, they got gourmet food, they got luxuries. They got plasma TVs whilst you're slaving away and you haven't got one, yeah. So in my second year, when I was the genesis of the blog, I said to the guard, how do you guys get away with all this shit? Dead rats in the food, roaches all over us at night, guards murdering men to the prisoners. And the guard said the world has no idea what's given, what's going on in here, and the public doesn't give a shit about prisoners. So I thought, right, this has got to change. So with a tiny little pencil sharpened on the door, I started writing everything down. And my aunt, who came and visited me in Max, I released it to her through the visitation officers. She smuggled them out, typed them up, and that's how my blog, John Gill Journal, started in 2004, I think. So people can go back and actually read most of my incarceration documented real-time in my online journal, all time-stamped. Mm. Yeah, but it's sad. My heart opened to the suffering of huma- human beings going through addiction issues and victims of paedophiles. Because I would say that the root cause of crime, the majority of it is childhood trauma, and the majority of that is paedophilia. Mm-hmm. So when these paedophiles come in and it's kill on sight, I understand now why, because a lot of the, pe- the fellas, they're not putting it out there on Front Street that this has happened to them, but they have been victims of child abuse in one way or the other. And even now with my True Crime podcast, it's a reoccurring theme that if you're a man who's an armed robber, for example, how did you get there? Abused as a kid didn't get the tools to deal with it, got onto weed in the beginning or some other drug to self-medicate, and then stepped up to harder and harder drugs, got addicted to crack, had to finance that. Next thing, I've got a gun, I'm doing fucking armed robberies. And for the women, it's either sex work or shoplifting, stuff mm. like that. Exactly the same, we see it. The men go into the dealing and the more violent crime, and the women go into the sex work and the, the pickpocketing and, and the shoplifting. Yeah, mm. it's really sad. Because no one's ever given these people the tools to help them with the trauma of these fucking beasts doing these things to them. I, mean, I interviewed a guy at the weekend. It was horrible. He's This guy, I don't know if you saw that Netflix thing, um, Abducted in Plain Sight, where the predator seduces the parents as well. This predator... Well, how, how did he do it? Because I've seen one where it was like this... He kept telling these this girl that she was going to get abducted by aliens. That's it. Is that the one? Yeah. 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 That was it this guy I interviewed the weekend, same thing. He he seduced the parents, and um, it, it got to the point where the police were involved. But he was told that it was his fault because he'd brought this person into the family, and then he told the predator, and the predator said, "Yeah, you can't say that. You got to tell them you've made it all up." Mm. It could have been stopped. He felt so bad that his mum's new boyfriend had blamed him. You, you know, you introduced this guy to us. This is your friend. He, got, he felt so bad. He told them all he'd made it all up. So it continued for years. And then, and then he, obviously, he's going to get into depression and, and drug use. Yeah, and it sounds like um, in the place that you were in for a year and a half, almost two years, it sounds like a lot of people, w- once they might get jailed for let's say a petty drug crime like maybe dealing weed because in america that's a huge deal you know possession of weed yeah possession of weed i saw black black kids and mexican kids getting two to five years for a joint of weed because they had prior felony Mm. convictions at the the peak of the war on drugs you got a million arrests a year for weed possession Mm. 
how hard is it to arrest someone with weed? It's easy. If you've got to fill your private prison, $60,000 a year of taxpayers' money, mm. lowest hanging fruit is drug users and the most consumed drug in the world is weed. Yeah, and if they're doing something like that petty and then they're in this place where it's vile conditions, they're being treated poorly, there's like such ultra-violence going on all around them, you would start to get radicalised and then it's just like this cycle that would be hard to break out of. You go from being a pothead to coming to that jail and you come out a skinhead, neo-Nazi, heroin addict with a criminal record and swastikas and Hitler tattooed on yourself. How on earth are you going to get a job like that? Yeah. They give you $50 on the gate and say, have a nice day. They know as soon as that's spent, you're going to come right back. And that's what keeps these private prisons in business. And that's just one. There's hundreds of parasitic con um, entities profiting from this. Prison guards, unions, razor wire manufacturers. There's telephone contractors. There's hundreds of them. Mm. It's big money. And mm. our politicians are in on it and they're scum. Has that improved at all since your incarceration? Do you know? or No, because it's spreading all over the world. Now England has got the highest incarceration rate in Europe. The American public have got so sick of it, they have lobbied at the state level to legalise and decriminalise weed. Mm -hmm. That is not the government, that's the people. They're sick of their kids getting pulled over and them ending up in a jail like that. Mm. Or the police taking the parent's car under civil asset forfeiture laws. Teenage kids driving a car with weed in it gone car's gone to the police department they take it so it's gone to such an extreme there's been a backlash by the public but the u.s federal government has maintained weed as a schedule one substance more harmful than crystal meth with no medicinal value whatsoever so that's where the corporations want it to be oh a little bit of cannabis yeah yeah, it, it's. I mean, the whole war on drugs thing is quite farcical anyway, because you've just created a bigger issue than there was by, you know, taking some kids who smoke a joint, putting them in the slammer, and then they come out hardened criminals. It's an economic equation as well. So I've written five books about Pablo Escobar. Mm -hmm. He could source a kilo of coca paste from Peru or Bolivia for sixty dollars. In the nineteen seventies, it was going for sixty thousand the kilo. Doesn't matter if you're Escobar, Chapo, Cali Cartel, with that profit margin someone else is always going to step in. So drug laws have made worthless plants more valuable than gold, which has been the biggest profit opportunity in the history of the world for organized crime to flood the entire world with drugs. Mm -hmm. So everything from the majority of knife crime in London to hundreds of thousands dead in Mexico is a consequence of people competing for the black market profits created by drug laws. And mm -hmm. the government knows that because they did it with alcohol and they stopped it after 10 years because Al Capone was running around with his machine gun crew and alcohol, the concentration, liquor was most profit worthy. So that was what was mass manufactured. And they stopped it. They said the prohibition has not worked. They've seen the same thing happen with drugs, fentanyl. I interviewed a psychiatrist out of Canada. He said, I wish we could go back to the good old days of heroin. Because fentanyl, so. Yeah. Yeah. So they've seen every year it gets worse, mm -hmm. it gets cheaper, it gets stronger, but they've not stopped it because they're profiting from it. Young people taking drugs are suckers they can put in private prisons and make tens of billions a year off, clients for life. You've even got companies investing in music whereby those musicians are saying to young people, you know, deal drugs, kill cops, and that kind of shit. They're investing in the music that's making that and investing in the private prisons to house those kids in when they get arrested at the same time. That's how evil the NWO, oh, Ikean Cabal. <laughs> <laughs>
Well, on that note, unfortunately, we have actually ran out of oh, time. Oh, shit. Okay. We've actually ran out of time. And oh, we my did, God, it's five. Yep. We didn't, even, we didn't even get to any of the other stuff. So, yeah. dare I ask, can you come back for a part two? Of course, Elise. I would love yes. that. Yes. Yes, and you can check out Sean's channel. I mean, just type Sean Atwood into YouTube. Perhaps Elise will put the link in the description box. I absolutely <laughs> will. I absolutely will. But is Thank there any, anything else that you'd like to... All my socials are mm. just under my name. Sean, S-H-A-U-N, Atwood, A-T-T Wood. I've written 15 books of my own, mm -hmm. all available worldwide on Amazon. The audiobooks are doing really well. Plus, I've published a lot of books for fellas getting out of prison, about 20 plus books as well. They're all out on Amazon under my company, Gadfly Press. So, yeah, if you're out there, if you enjoyed this, let us know. And if you want to, if you've got an amazing story, contact us. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. I'm crime stories about we want. More crime stories. Yes. <laughs> more, more crime stories, more ex-cons. I love it. Dark, harrowing encounters. <laughs> <laughs> just a morbid curiosity. Yes. I just, it's interesting, isn't it? Yeah. It's very interesting. Thank mm -hmm. you so much for coming on. Cool. Hope to see you Cheers. again yeah. for a part two, maybe a part three. Who knows? Catch You've got up, so many stories. That's great. That's true, Geordie, at that rate. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, he should come on as well. But anyway, that's all from us today. Remember to like, comment, subscribe. Follow me on Spotify. Not me. <laughs> Don't follow me on Spotify. I'm not on Spotify. Follow the Elise Easy Show on Spotify and iTunes. All that good stuff. And I'll see you guys next time. Bye. Bye.